Hello everybody. This hasn't felt like the week for playing games or for recording podcasts about them. The the comfort and the entertainment and the distraction that we get from games and the comfort and the distraction and the entertainment that hopefully this podcast is capable of providing in turn are privileges and we're trying to be mindful of that fact. And we want to encourage anyone who enjoys the same privileges that we do to be mindful of it as well. Uh, we do have a podcast for you this week, and it will start in a couple of minutes. But before it does, uh, there's a few things that we'd like to express. The first is that the Creighton Crowbar is donating £1,000 to the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Uh, donations to Black Lives Matter are used to fight to end state-sanctioned violence, to liberate black people, and to end white supremacy. This is urgently necessary. It's long overdue, and we want to express our support for the movement and for the black communities and other marginalised people who are putting themselves at risk in the pursuit of justice and their fundamental human rights. We are also donating £1,000 to the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust. The trust provides support to young people from disadvantaged backgrounds in the UK uh, so that they can overcome discrimination and succeed in the careers of their choice. This is the first time that we've done something like this as the Creighton Crowbar, and we want to continue to uh, find ways that we can use the, the podcast and our platform for good in the future. We have some ideas about this. We're looking into the particularities of implementing them, but we're very much open to your input and your feedback. And so uh, if you have any ideas in this regard, you can contact us at contact at creightoncrowbar.com. Uh, there is also a lot we can do personally uh, to become better informed, better educated on matters of racial injustice and to advance anti-racist attitudes and anti-discriminatory attitudes in the parts of the games industry in which we each individually work. Uh, to that end, you will find uh, a list of resources as well as causes you may wish to uh, donate to in the show notes for this episode, uh, which are available at creightoncrowbar.com. Otherwise, just stay safe and take care of one another. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 236 of The Creighton Crowbar. It is the 4th of June, 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me tonight are Marsh Davies. Hello! Tom Senior. Hello! A Sparrow. Which you can hear continuously <laughs> peeping away. I think actually, I think it might be, you know you get heart monitors in, uh, in <clears throat> TV films about hospitals. I think yeah. this is measuring my sanity. And when it finally emits a long single tone, that will be when I've finally gone fucking insane. Is it, is it, uh, you know, I, I know where you are because it's the house what I used to live in. Um, is it the top of the nest box outside no. your office window? No, is they've made a nest one? in the wisteria on the, uh, on the other, oh, other wall. That's even closer. They used, they used to do this thing where they would just sit very fat on top of the nest box and yell. Yeah. Um, in order to water the birds off from their, from their, uh, eggs that's what that's called um we have some you know additional um bird news regarding the podcast uh, i believe tom you've got the latest on alex yeah so uh, i just wanted to check in with the status of um valued pod member alex wiltshire um and i'm just going to relate to you the last two messages that he sent last night uh on a Creighton crowbar private discord um and a lot of it is in all caps i'm going to try and represent 
uh, that emphasis. Um, <laughs> so, first message. Crow fight outside! <laughs> it's fucking mental out there. Crows! Um, that's the first message he sends. Then, like, moments later, oh shit, they're coming back again. It's fucking crows! <laughs> uh, and we didn't hear from him for about 26 hours <laughs> after those messages. Uh, so, I was, I was quite alarmed. I thought that maybe the crows got him. Uh, but... He did respond today at 6pm uh, with the message, dead of crows, uh, which, while sinister, suggests that he is still alive and, uh, and reasonably happy. I liked his pointed resistance at, uh, at going for the obvious murder pun. As, uh... Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, which is what I would have done for sure. Um, but yeah, so Alex is doing well. He's battling the elements. He's battling nature. Nature is rising up, uh, you know, reclaiming its, its territory. Crow-based drama. <laughs> will continue in the coming months, I'm sure. I thought I'd give everyone, everyone that little update. It's always nice to have a story about birds. It yes, it is. It is. Um, it's been some some game announcements. Some of them very unexpected. Um, who could have foreseen the return of Kingdoms of Amalur: Reckoning? Yes, in, in the year 2020. Uh, given the year that it is, possibly why not? It's uh, it's true. Uh, Kingdoms yeah. of Amalur: Reckoning. The the 2011 uh, third-person looter basher RPG game is back. Uh, the uh, THQ Nordic is publishing it, republishing it as Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning. You've got to, you've got to really admire that they managed to make that name worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think they. It's interesting because they picked like. They could have picked any of those words to put re in front of, and it would be equally bad. It's it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it's, yeah, so a remastered version of um, Kingdoms of Amalur, for some reason, why not? And I was going to say, and who cares? But Tom, you care. You see, I do care. I actually <laughs> strangely excited about this for some reason. Um, this is, for me, like, uh, as a connoisseur of six out of ten games... <laughs> Mm. This is the ultimate one. This is like this is the particular example of a uh, sort of six, seven out of ten game that's actually more fun than it should be. Mm. Um, it's actually got like a quite a fun combat system. It's trying to be an MMO because the uh, the development process behind that game is insane. Like the the ins and outs of that development process uh, are mad. And it's incredible that they produced any game at all. Um, it, never, it doesn't need to be remastered at all. <laughs> There's absolutely no need to remaster it. It's fine. It's a nice looking game. Like uh, The textures don't need to be improved. Um, but I am, nevertheless, in a time of lockdown, I've been appreciating uh, this sort of game. So I've been playing lots of... Uh, oh, what is it? The um... Shadow of Mordor. Oh, I've been playing loads of that, yes. But um, the definit- uh, definitive edition of so, Xenoblade Chronicles, that's it, on Switch. Mm. Um that's very much kind of like mop up the map type RPG, and that's I, that's the sort of thing along with Assassin's Creed Odyssey that I've been really enjoying recently, mm. just because I can listen to a podcast and just mop stuff up. And the, it's time consuming and nice. Interestingly, this uh, this game is being remastered by uh, Keiko, which is the same company that did the Darksiders remasters. Ah, uh-huh, right. And I feel like maybe you should work there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I do uh, because I would have made the exact same decisions they've made. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm very happy personally. Um, I think you'd make an excellent like marketing manager for them. I, I would think be so yeah. enthusiastic about those games. Mm, uh, exactly. 
I'd really drive them forward and knowing their faults and knowing how derivative and <laughs> mediocre they are in many ways. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, they're very fun games. They're good. They're good. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's good for them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Just you didn't expect it. Uh, maybe slightly more predictable. Um, Total War Saga Troy um, was announced, which is, I think, the second Total War Saga game. Is that correct? I'm saying that in podcast voice. I believe so. I think the first one was set in Britain. Yeah. Uh, and this is the second one they've done of these. Yeah, so it's a smaller scale Total War game. Bit more focused, bit more narrative. In this case, the Iliad, um, and it's got uh, like a lot of the you know it, a lot of the presentation of this reminded me a lot of um, just from the trailer reminded me a lot of Total War Warhammer, and mm-hmm. similar to that, it has you know heroes and fantasy elements like uh, minotaurs and other things that you put in ancient Greece games. Now what? Um, Hang on, it has fantasy elements, does it? Well, minotaurs? I believe so. Oh really? Well, I think... well, they, oh no! What they've done is they've um, they're trying to sort of take a middle path and oh. uh, say that um, so minotaurs are units that are actually human. They're just very big men. Oh. Um, so they're actually what they're doing is they're trying to uh, again with like the Trojan horse, for example. They're not actually going to do the literal Trojan horses in the legend. They they're sort of looking at historical inter- like interpretations of what that might have actually meant in real life. Um, so you know, it might have been an earthquake. It might have been this, that, or the other. Like, um, so they're they're trying not to make it like explicitly fantasy, though it is hero focused. Um, right. But they're also trying to map like uh, a lot of you know um, that literature onto the units that who are still human. They're not actually minotaurs. Oh, I see. That, they're just called that. That immediately confused me because I saw like greater focus on hero abilities and things, mm. and uh, minotaurs and cyclopses, and just assumed monster town. But I'm sorry, I was completely wrong about that. Mm. So they've taken the same approach that the start of Assassin's Creed Odyssey takes, I guess, where it's like, right, here's right. the Cyclops, he's just a dickhead. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's just a man who is a dickhead. There's no... And then um, you shove his uh, glass eye up the arse of a goat. And, uh, oh, yeah. I forgot that. Best moment of that game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really good. I really like it. Any any uh, Total War thoughts? It feels like uh, it's. I'm surprised that it's not... A subject that's been kind of done already really mm. it's such a kind yeah, of right. cornerstone it's... of war literature and and you know fantasy military storytelling like i think so it's, I've, I've long felt that it's been co- the iliads uh, or just the troy really has been uh, calling out for a, a sort of oh well like a shadow of mordor style stealth slash action game mm. where you're you're one of odysseus's <laughs> sneaky boys Sneaking into Troy and causing havoc within the walls, and then trying to exfiltrate again. I think that would be good. That's not what yeah, this is. I don't know good. why I mentioned it. Really, <laughs> they um, can't really do Assassin's Creed Iliad now, can they? They've, <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't, I, I read a bit of um, Rock Paper Shotgun's preview of it, which is written by Nate, which is really good. Um, uh, but he he, did, he calls out as as a as a problem with the game, which does sound like a mechanical problem that. Uh, uh, attention-demanding heroes require a lot of micromanagement, which is, is like, <laughs> no, not news to Odysseus. For, for yeah. <laughs> you're like, fucking tell me about it, man. <laughs> that's on point, though, right? That's, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, cool. Should we talk a little bit about what we've been playing this Why not? Uh, last couple of weeks? Why not? Uh, Marsh, would you like to 
go first. Yeah, why not? Um, I've been playing uh, a game called Stone Shard, which mm. I really want to like, uh, but have been essentially <laughs> rejected by. Um, it's in it's in early access, so there's there's a long way to go, I think. Um, and uh, to to go by the the Tom Francis certified taxonomy of games, it is a rogue rogue like 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 I would say. <laughs> Mm. Uh, which is to say it's it's more roguey than some uh, in its moment-to-moment sort of actions. It's tile-based, for example, and every time you move a single tile or perform an action, everything else on the map then takes a, a moment to move or act. Mm. Um, but it's also a lot more like the sort of grand RPGs uh, in, in other regards. It's just this, this sprawling low-fantasy world, um, which is really sumptuously pixel arted up i don't think it's proc gen at least i haven't i haven't encountered anything that feels that proc gen i haven't got into that many dungeons so maybe there are mm. proc gen elements to them but um it feels like it's quite handcrafted um and there's this this obsessive interest in, in detailed status effects so your ca- character can be wounded in about 50 fucking different ways it feels and each of these ways has their own repercussions and multi-stage fixes and you uh there's also like survival elements as well um to, i can't re- recall how pressing they were in in the early early rogue slash rogue adjacent games um mm-hmm. but you constantly have to top up with food and water and, and make sure you don't go insane um and the other thing that it sort of top line feature is that it's proudly difficult um it makes a big deal about how your character is no one special in this world and they can be fucked up uh, at any point by really anybody. Uh, that certainly proves to be true. Um, but I have this, I just have this wariness of self-proclaimed difficult games mm. because it's, it's really not hard at all to make a difficult game. <laughs> like, yeah. You just, right. uh, and I feel, I mean, a lot of people do it by accident. Um, <laughs> I feel it can be a bit of a get out for developers who just failed to balance their games. Mm. Um, it's the get good thing, right? It's like, well, if you don't, right. if you don't get it, get good. Well, um, yeah, it's, it yeah. inoculates them from criticism for sure. Mm. Um, but also, I, I think it's just uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a reason that the survival games in general proliferated a few years ago. Um, when like when that, there was that big sort of Unity asset store boom of games, mm. game maker games, and, and people suddenly found the tools very accessible. But I think a lot of people didn't necessarily have design skills. But one sort of core loop that they could easily implement in the game was uh, to have a health meter that just drops to zero over time. Because um, yeah. that, that gives you a core loop and it obviates any need for really thinking about late game or escalation or progression or balance and all these other things. Um, right. And I just don't find that loop especially interesting or nourishing. And I think the value of difficult games is in what failure teaches you. And I think for a lot of difficult games, they don't teach you very much at all. Um, and if and like yeah, like you say, the whole get good thing irks me as well. If something's like just opaque or unintuitive or poorly explained, then you can say it's intentional and it's not a shortcoming; it's a feature. Um, but I, those are all my misgivings about difficult games. I don't know if Stone Shard is that kind of difficult game, mm. but the fact that I don't know is because it is sufficiently difficult that I have not been able to interrogate its systems really at all properly. Um, mm. like experimentation in the game just in 99% of cases leads to immediate death or worse a long 
drawn out death, which is nonetheless totally inevitable. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. What is the theme? Like, what's its sort of setup? So it is it is this low fantasy world in which you are a mercenary and. Uh, mm. it, the, the the world has been at war for some time the the, the whatever long-term plot there is has not yet emerged uh during my playthrough i'm just sort of in a village and going out of the village to do little sort of missions for the village elder um, and i assume at some point i'll earn enough money to buy a cart and then the story will progress to some other um stage um but um I haven't really got that far because it is it is just so difficult. I, um, I don't want to say that it wastes your time exactly because it, it sort of dismisses many of the other qualities about the game that I really like. And like moment to moment, it's gorgeous to look at. Um, and you are making interesting choices. And there is mm. just this just richness to the simulation of your character and the world around you, which which makes it a really interesting place. Like you don't know what things are going to happen to you at any one point and you don't know what consequences are going to fall out from them. Um, but it does just fall back on just this unrewarding sort of unenlightening punishment. And there's a really good example at the end of the, the tutorial, which I otherwise really like. It has a really good tutorial where it's, it's, um, it places you as a particular character, a character called Verin, who is this beaten up old mercenary dude. Um, who's been captured uh, along with the rest of his party by uh, creatures, let's say, uh, which have taken over this dilapidated monastery. And it's this really cool and atmospheric sequence in which you break out of prison and then try to escape. And um, and the story of the monastery is quite deftly delivered, even if it isn't like some groundbreaking work of fantasy fiction. But it climaxes in this boss battle, which is... Um, surprisingly elaborate it's more like a dark souls boss battle than you might something you might expect from a roguelike and it took me quite a few goes just to figure out what you know what to do there's like a, an initial phase which is almost like a puzzle solving phase and then mm. there's a secondary phase which is just a, a pure combat phase but even that combat phase is is interesting because it's much more about positioning um than like an exchange of stats uh this creature will uh will fuck you up if it gets close to you um it also performs this really telegraphed dash move that you can move out of. Um, and it also conjures this sort of AOE curse effect, which is sort of more or less in front of it. And that's really hard to avoid because you can only move one tile at a time and the AOE effect is only telegraphed one turn in advance. So it could just be bigger than the area that you can move out of. So you're, mm. you almost inevitably get cursed at some point in this drawn out battle. But... You can't you can't exchange blows with this thing. It will just wreck you. So it's clearly a ranged fight, but your character doesn't have really any ranged abilities at all. I mean, he does have a bow, but he can't fucking shoot it properly. Um, he's got uh, the point where I started the battle. I had twenty two arrows, and uh, I fired every single one of those arrows and didn't hit a single one. Uh, then <laughs> then uh, and I think the game is making like this point that you aren't exceptional in any way. Uh, and you may just encounter things that are difficult or beyond your ability. But what it means in practice is that you just have to go around and pick up your arrows again and again and again while dodging all the attacks. And if if you're cursed as well, then you're even less likely to land an arrow blow. And so by the time I've sort of figured out how to avoid his attacks, I'm already like double cursed and horribly mauled. And I, I somehow kind of like persevere, boringly traipsing around and pick up all the arrows again and again. 
And periodically, you know, I do land a shot. And eventually I, I get this, this fucker down to a, a tiny sliver of health. And one more arrow, just one more arrow. Just need one more arrow to kill him. I'm also nearly dead. He'll just hit me one more time and I'll die. So he puts down his, his dash move. And uh, I move out the way. But because I'm cursed and have a status effect, my character decides to move in the opposite direction. Into the line no. of fire, and I die. Oh, God. And it's just like, uh, okay, start again. And like, uh, okay, so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biting my hand and screeching in frustration, temporarily silencing the sparrows uh, with my rage. <laughs> um, but, and I, I guess it, like, teaches you about status effects and how deleterious they can be. But what did I, what did I really, what was the point of me then doing it all again? You know, I've already, mm. I've already learned the lesson. I didn't really. It doesn't feel like that was an enriching punishment in any way, because I, I would didn't even. It wasn't even my fault. <laughs> I did the right thing, and the game decided it was going to play for me and do the wrong thing. And I, I just don't know what you get from that, really. But that's just. Um, that's just a. Oh, that's just. Oh, that's just a little taste of what what's to come. Because uh, <laughs> outside that tutorial, I don't know how you survive a single fucking encounter, like. You don't play as Varen from then. You, you Varen retires and becomes the guy who recruits you, your new character, which is kind of cool. Right. Um, but it's still, I don't know if this is going to be true in the full game. But at the moment, you just choose from a selection of of predefined characters, um, and then uh, then you tootle out into the world and get killed by wolves. Uh, it seems and like <laughs> one wolf you can just about kill, but it will horribly wound you. But two, no chance. Uh, and there's always more than one, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> but the, the th thing is, b even being wounded in the game is just like a huge problem. Because while you can treat wounds, the process is incredibly resource-hungry and, and elaborate and, and time-consuming. It involves bunches of different ingredients and rest. And then if you rest, then there's knock-on effects of hunger and thirst. And then you need to manage your pain. Uh, and... And you don't necessarily have the resources to deal with being even slightly wounded at the beginning of this game. And yet, being wounded just makes you less able in every way, in a really dramatic ways. So, like, some injuries, not even especially serious ones, will, will give you a chance to stumble every time you move. And if you <laughs> stumble and fall, you take more damage. And so you... This, what this means in practice, I mean, you can say like, oh, well, that's so realistic. How interesting that they've managed to put something so granular and realistic in the game. But it, what it means is that you just can't click more than two squares away from you. Because if you move two squares and it does a dice roll in between the movement of the, those two squares, you won't have a chance to stop and, and prevent yourself from stumbling and falling. And it just puts, just being even slightly injured puts you into this deep, deep nosedive that is almost impossible to pull out of, as far as I can tell. Uh, like, I just don't know what's uh, especially interesting about it. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm really flummoxed because there's so much to recommend the game in other ways. And you can see that they've really thought about a, a lot of the, the kind of stats underpinning this stuff and how they interact with each other. But it's just like I'm being slapped down from for doing pretty what i think is not not especially wildly stupid stuff mm. why is it hurting me is my question i guess so it sounds like you're not supposed to go outside the village right like it sounds like you're supposed to stay in the village forever or for <laughs> a couple of hours you know what i mean until 
you can, you know, mm. do you have, but are you following, I, I know maybe it's not the right word, but is there a sense of a critical path that you are following or not following? Like, yes. I mean, you're told, go to the village elder. The tooltip is go to the village elder that's on your screen until you go to the village elder. And you do you have one a choice of two missions, both of which involve going into the village and dying <laughs> instantaneously. <laughs> um, so so I did, I did look for advice uh, on the internet, uh, as we call it, as, uh, as to what to do. And, um, well... So here's the here's the other thing about difficult games is that they attract a certain kind of player, mm. um, who is uh, who is a c um, frankly, <laughs> uh, and the forums are just full of people offering really unhelpful advice and sneering at anybody who who doesn't instantaneously know what to do. Uh, but I, I wrote down some of their their their, their little tips, um, which I I should preface by saying. None of them work, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the first things you need to do—I mean, it's obvious, really. It's obvious. I mean, in every game, you need to do this when you when you set out—is to rob the army barracks. You need to. The first thing you do <laughs> is to go into the army barracks. Just go into the garrison, go into their armory, and just take everything. Nobody will question you. There's no there's no repercussion for that. Just take what you want and and sell the rest. Um, uh, that this doesn't work entirely because the implication is that you get better weapons for doing this, but actually the weapons you have are better than all of this stuff. But you can make a small amount of money, a very small amount of money, uh, from selling the <laughs> the uh, entire army's supply of weaponry to the vendor who is literally outside the garrison <laughs> building. Um, but I mean, that's obvious. Everybody would go for that. So that's fine. Uh, you should also take off your metal armor and uh, trash it and replace it with leather armor, which is, is as far as I can tell, a bad idea because it's worse. Uh, also, you can't afford <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> there's plenty of stuff on the internet suggesting how you get prepared. All of this stuff involves buying things and you can't afford to buy any of the things. Is that um, how you sell all the stuff from the armory? <clears throat> yeah, but um, I sold all the stuff from the armory and I was able to buy one healing potion. Uh, so I don't know that it's that cost-effective uh, a method to, uh, to to get ahead. Then you need to sleep um, because uh, obviously this is what you do at the beginning of every quest is you sleep because that's the only way to save. Um, mm. And then you can set out on your quest. You should avoid roads, uh, which is actually, that's kind of a sensible one in that that is a sort of, that is sort of in the fiction that you don't tread and go go along the roads because that's where the bandits are. But the bandits aren't the problem. The wolves are the problem. And the wolves aren't on the roads. They're everywhere else. Um, uh, you should always travel diagonally. I mean, obviously. Um, uh, you should go hunting. Um, no, no suggestion of how you successfully hunt anything because your character can't hit anything with a bow. And uh, you move at the same speed of, as every other animal. Um, so you can't chase anything down or ever hit it. So, um, so yeah, thanks, Internet. Thanks, Internet, for those tips. <laughs> Stone shard. <laughs> well, I'm going to... I want somebody just to tell me what to do because I feel like I, I've, uh, I've done my duty, really. I'm not, I'm not being impatient with it or done things that I think are unintuitive. I just, I just have no idea what, 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 what I'm meant to be doing. I mean, so much, like, you've... Uh endured Dark Souls 2 with me and <laughs> uh, Four Kings with Rich Stanton mm. um, 
and those uh, that's a matter of public record on our YouTube channel. In Indeed. Fact. So um, the fact that you had the patience for those escapades <laughs> and not this one does say a lot about the game. I feel. Yeah, I think I just I mean, in Dark Souls. I mean, it actually, to be fair, I, I did bounce straight off Dark Souls the first time mm. uh, because I wasn't convinced that uh, its punishment of me was going to lead to some reward or greater insight. But it does mm. in Dark Souls. In fact, struggle is so integral integral to its larger message and philosophy. I mean, just in one of the ways in which it rewards you. Um, that that it is well worth persisting but in this yeah i just I, you know the and this is the problem with, with uh difficult games is that there are so many games out there that i think it's unwiser developers to put those roadblocks up because you need mm. you, you just can't as a as a random player trust that the developer will have something interesting to say once you've pushed through the difficulty mm. like you've got to meet meet people halfway really it's my is my feeling, but I think you were absolutely right at the start of this with the Unity sort of initial wave of Unity game analogy that it's a great way to cover for not having a lot of content. <laughs> you know, oh. make the content you do have very hard to access. Um, it's a cheap way of achieving that. But it sounds like there's quite a lot of um, obviously this game isn't finished yet, but it does sound like there's been quite a big um, investment in in the world and the systems and things. And if that is true and there's stuff to discover and, and value in, in discovering it, then it does make sense to lower the barrier to accessing that stuff, right? No one's going to be super annoyed if they kind of blitz through everything that's there in a couple of hours if they were a fun couple of hours, depending on price and expectation and stuff. But you know what I mean? Like, it's mm. the only real case for that is if this is a ultimately like minuscule demo and, and there's, you know, there's really nothing beyond that initial challenge or something like that. Yeah, I really don't know because the reviews I've read uh, notably only have screenshots up to the point where I am. <laughs> no one's gotten past that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe. Who could say? Anyway, I I, uh, I may come back to it at a later date when I think some mm. of these things may have been addressed or I get advice on how to proceed. Because I, I do think there's something there. But fuck knows where or how I get to it. <laughs> What have you been up to, Tom? Um, so I want to talk about two games. One very briefly, just to start with, uh, which is a game called Sludge Life, uh, which is a first, first-person game about uh, doing graffiti on uh, buildings uh, that are submerged in a sludge because the sort of corporate structure that sustains this economy has broken down and now like everything's literally going to shit. Um, <laughs> And the fun thing about this is that, first of all, it's just a very surreal kind of lo-fi world to explore. Um, there's not much to the game. Like you just um, you pull out your camera and you see where you can actually put your uh, spray your tag. But the best thing about it is just the NPC dialogue that you get as you kind of explore. Um, so like there's one guy, for example, um, you're at this basketball court and you can actually play with basketball. It's a physics object. You can put it through the hoop. Um, then there's you go across this guy on the side and he says to you, I sprained both my ankles last week downloading this huge file, so I gotta lay low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's full of this like extremely good, quirky dialogue. There's a sort of nihilism running through it, but quite a warm sense of nihilism. Everyone is giving up on their job, <laughs> everyone knows that they're sort of like their city is fucked. Um, 
but they have very very funny things to say about it um so you could go to like a frog man and he'll tell you about like how he used to smoke but doesn't anymore it's it's kind of (laughs) it's it's just really it's just a really fun world to be in even though it's quite a miserable place so Mm. i think like as a thing to explore in this current time i found it kind of weirdly refreshing in that uh we're all like very sad and disappointed about the way the world is in many ways at the moment and then there are all these kind of like quirky characters who are as well but they have they sort of put it into very very (laughs) very funny dialogue just funny sort of like uh, dialogue chains uh so yeah i just wanted to give a shout out to such life uh particularly because it's free on the epic game store for a year so if you want to go play this you can just go onto the epic game store just get it and it's yours and just enjoy that um yeah so i want to give that a shout out the other game i've been playing is uh receiver 2 from wolfire games um i believe the first game came out of a game jam i think Mm. um and the thing that um really so it's the first person sort of a roguelike really uh it's a shooter but it's very very obsessed with um guns as as mechanical objects like it's in there are like many, many buttons you need to press to reload a weapon. So we in games are used to just play, pressing R and your character just sort of does all the stuff that reloads the gun. Whereas in this, depending on the weapon, there are many different kind of rituals for reloading um, where you have, might have to take out a clip, press Z a load of times to put like bullets into the clip, then whack it back in. Uh, and there's an extraordinary level of attention to detail in the way that these weapons are modeled, the way that they fire. Um, and indeed in the sort of flavor text that is attached to each one of them uh to the extent that the first two guns you get one's just a uh a standard revolver a, a smith and western and the second one is a detective revolver which was basically a snub nose version of the same weapon designed for detectives who wanted to have concealed firearms um and uh the flavor text obsesses over the fact that um one barrel uh turns clockwise but in the snub nose version it turns anti-clockwise um and that matters because certain uh chambers are blocked so you have to know where the bullets are and what you're actually about to shoot um and when you actually incredibly when you pop out the uh the chamber the the way you can tell when whether a bullet has been fired is because you see a dent in the back of the uh the back of every single shell that has been actually shot where the hammer hit it and that's the level of that's the level of attention to detail. Um, it's absolutely like incredibly obsessed with guns, um, but at the same time, it's also very uncomfortable with guns. And this is, uh, I think, this is just like this sort of loads of interesting stuff to explore with Receiver Two because uh, you go to the flavor text, and each uh, description of a weapon is written as though it's the biggest sort of hobbyist enthusiast writing about that particular weapon uh, and so the first thing you read about the revolver for example the smith and western it's like this is way better than auto- automatic handgun because xyz but then when you read the automatic handgun description it says oh this is way better than revolvers because of xyz and it's, it's a kind of like a top gear level of obsession with these things <laughs> as machines um which i think is like very very deliberate um i think that the, and like I think this is interesting, it's particularly as like a British guy who, in our country, like guns aren't just aren't accessible, like they're not a thing, um, apart from cops and uh, here and there. But so to actually like 
but they are fascinating machines and like there is like it's interesting to explore that interest like kind of that interest in the mechanisms and the way that these things work and the sort of power they have but at the same time you only ever shoot uh machines in this game you never shoot people so you you go in and you're taking out turrets and they make that interesting because uh, the turrets depending on where you hit them uh they ha- it has different effects so i like to shoot them in the ammo loader at the back which is a box be- behind the actual gun uh and when you do that you you can actually go up and they can't fire because they're out of bullets and you actually pick up the bullets off the floor and reload your weapon uh, but you can also shoot out the uh, the sensor that detects you uh, and that has a different effect um or you can just straight up disable it with a really good shot to the, the base of the, the base of the turret so uh, they've made the even a static enemy very interesting made more interesting by the fact you have to manage these weapons manage your guns in such a such a kind of precise way um and then at the same time as all of that there's a real fear of guns in the law and the stuff that you pick up um and it's going to get a bit heavy so apologies uh but there's something in the story called the threat capital t capital t um and there's a series of kind of like diary entries that talk about the threat and how to defend against it and uh they say oh this is the thing that could sort of come over you at any moment and and change your behavior uh and so there's loads of like gun safety stuff in there so they say okay so the threat might come over you for five minutes that's why you need to put a gun in a box unload it put the ammo somewhere else lock it in a closet every uh, before like every every time that after you've used it in case the threat strikes and um that's for the protection of you and your family and the strong implication uh is that it's basically uh a game that is obsessed with the mechanism of guns and how interesting they are but also deeply fearful of for example suicide impulses um and or homicidal impulses that might strike briefly and cause you to do something terrible with a gun that's in your house uh, and there's, it's a deliberate and very definite tension uh, within the game, uh, given how obsessed it is about with the weapons, but also how scared it, the game is of the weapons and the fact that you, you only use them on machines and never on people. I, I think it's a fascinating thing, really. Mm. That's that's really interesting. I was wondering where you were going with that, and then it's like because I played a lot of the first receiver, and because it seemed like it emerged from obviously it emerged from a jam, and it feels kind of tech demo-y in some ways. Yeah. It definitely has this ambivalence to it, like this sci-fi, like this very empty feeling world. Everything else is a drone. Everything that isn't you is a drone, and really you are just a kind of floating gun. Um, but also you die instantly um, from any shot to you, and so there is this, again, I think you're right, like fear of the thing and also kind of fascination with it. I And I think that's such a... Like, I'd be interested, like, where are you... I mean, it sounds convincing from from your description of the whole that the 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 writing in the game is ironic or it's intended that way um how heavily how heavily does it does it land on that point you know is it obviously satirical or is it more just uh enthusiastic for guns in the way that those some people are and you only get the sense of irony from its context uh yeah so i think it is i think the people who've created this have a definite hobbyist um 
enthusiasm for for those weapons definitely like i don't think you could write that flavor text behind each gun which is like it's incredibly informative and like well written and just like really interesting mm. to read actually to be honest i think that's how like it sort of uh tricks you into sort of being enthusiastic about these weapons particularly because the mechanics actually force you to engage with every single mechanical motion you need to do with these things to actually get them to work mm. um and that's there's a real enthusiasm and love for it but also a huge enormous recognition that they're dangerous and horrible um which uh, i don't know I, I think you'd have to dig in and actually read all the text to get that i'm not mm. sure you just get that naturally from playing the game and in fact playing the game the game itself is quite frustrating and the way it's structured is quite irritating um just purely because of the way its objectives are structured so you'll be in this kind of um, obscure urban environment and you've got to find five cassettes and these things are tiny um so you're sort of like it's a needle and haystack type search uh and as you go through you need to like get rid of turrets so you can actually access new areas and or you have to go on a sound cues if you're near a tape you'll hear music um but it's so irritating <laughs> and um a mission is basically like oh five fi find five it's mm -hmm. like I, I don't want to <laughs> it's really annoying yeah and each time you find one um you get some an obscure voiceover about what a, you as a receiver are there's something called the mind kill which is never quite explained yet um i think i feel like it buries its themes a bit too much mm. i think like if you don't go into that, that flavor text and kind of feel that um the conflict there between the enthusiasm for guns and the fear of guns i don't think you quite get the game um but i still find it nevertheless fascinating it's, it's kind of interesting like because i was going to say like do you think someone who because you said that you obviously you uh approach this in the same way that i approached the first receiver and uh graham has talked a lot about receiver in the past as well uh where we bring tons of baggage with us like naturally you can't yeah. avoid it right like both sure. ignorance of these devices um a lack of first-hand experience of them you know like so there's a novelty there um, and also probably a predisposition to be suspicious of them. And I, I wonder what you think the impression of the game would be from someone who arrives at it from a completely different gun culture, like, you know, an American gun culture, for example, where there's, it's it's possible to... Well, what happens if you play this game and you are simply a fan? Does it, I think, Do you think you'd be challenged? I don't think you would, based on what I played. That's a really good question. Um, I think you'd just enjoy the mechanisms and how well they're modelled and not yeah. necessarily actually experience the anxiety behind it and but that anxiety is definitely there um but again like as you say as uh as a british citizen where gun we just don't have a good uh, a gun culture like that there is a kind of uh a predisposition to find that subtext um in a way right. that perhaps doesn't exist in other cultures for sure because like your description of it made it sound like a horror game like you mm. know there's something really unsettling about yeah, all the definitely. implications of of that but it's it's fascinating that it's simply because it's interactive and not didactic it, that horror game could just be a fun hobbyist experience for somebody else yeah. with a different yeah. set of biases mm -hmm. like that's such an interesting thing about games i think that you know i, I think there's a, a a much bigger debate somewhere lurking around here which is that like games can track in ambivalence really really in a very sophisticated way and often do in order to not have to say anything about anything um <laughs> but um 
I know this, this is always really interesting to hear about because it almost sounds like studied ambivalence in some ways, like letting the audience make up their own mind and discover mm. the danger and kind of fear of these objects. But also, what if you just don't say anything and therefore no one walks right. away with a, you, you don't, you haven't expressed a message, you haven't made a judgment. Yeah, because the, the, the tapes that you discover uh, is such vague bullshit about being a receiver and it's nonsense like the the best writing is is in all the descriptions mm. of stuff um so it's not putting its themes forward mm. it's not like it, i think you're you're right it's a deliberate ambivalence so that you know people who just love love a good gun and i do too uh, in a game um could just enjoy it on that basis which is of course like a good marketing decision as well i suppose right yeah. um, uh but it's it, I, I find this game much more honest about guns than something like Call of Duty, where mm. they make um, deals with arms makers to put their products in their games and that kind of stuff. Um, where it, yeah. I, I'd much, I'd much prefer this approach to it, where it's like, yeah, these things are fascinating. Actually, like let's be honest about that. These are fascinating machines, um, and we can explore every sort of like movement that you need to do to operate them. But also, let's mm. also think about why the <laughs> how terrifying they are and when you fire a shot in this game it's the loudest fucking thing like mm. every shot you fire it's so loud it's so kind of devastating the massive kick and that's all been carefully studied but i think that's i think that's quite powerful i think that's a deliberate part of the message it's trying to uh, get across yeah mm. it's so that's uh, sorry much you guys say oh well i was wondering if you thought that you could still have this sort of tactile mechanical experience of, of a similar kind which wasn't about guns, yeah. Because mm. obviously, the, mm. the there is a like an interaction element with your environment there, which which guns immediately suggest, <laughs> you know, this, this mm -hmm. you know, being in line of sight of something and the the spatial positioning you need to evade something and then also attack it is an interesting thing. But in just in terms of being able to manipulate a device that you have in your hand in a in a really detailed way. That feels like something that could be done uh in some other domain than gun wank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's that's totally completely true. And um when the only the, the, the example that springs to mind is actually Alien Isolation where mm. uh you have these awesome machines that you use to unlock doors and you have to like press buttons to sort of like tap buttons and then crank it and then move it and then gradually unlock it and that is super satisfying it is really good um and you're right like maybe they'd, i'd love to see more of that sort of thing yeah. I don't, I'll tell you what just popped into my head but mirror moon uh which i i remember talking about on the podcast whew, many many years ago now maybe like in the in the when the podcast was merely in its teens even um that has, that's a game about exploring planets and using these bizarre cartography tools to work out mm. where you are and how to get to where you need to go. And I th I can't remember exactly how detailed your interaction with those things is, but I mean that's yeah. that, I mean that's that's exactly what uh, mm. this game could be if it took away the actual gun shooting part. It feels like the first receiver, at least like was novel and and you know and to in its kind of as a it felt like an interesting direction to take the fps in right like its fundamental assumptions i think are that guns are a game thing right mm. uh other connotations notwithstanding and they pulled 
one part of that far closer to reality than it had ever been or that I had ever experienced in a game. Hmm. Um, almost as an experiment. Like, is a is an FPS yeah. playable if you actually have to think about all the mechanisms in, in play? And, and, and maybe not tremendously interrogating the implications of guns um, beyond that, right? They are uh, mechanically in games a useful way to have the player express their intent into an environment. You know, it's like... It's, there's a reason it's a portal gun in Portal, and it's because that's the most intuitive way to say, I would like there to be a portal there, yeah. and I understand what's happening, and I understand the logic of what happens when I click the mouse button and something emits from my character. It's a, met- it's a useful metaphor in that sense. Um, and it just enters such strange territory, which I think we are also becoming far more aware of the... the um, issues with of... You know, at the at that point, it's it can't ever, it will never just be a useful metaphor for video games because they're ultimately going to be and you know direct analogies for real life devices that really have a single purpose and that's to kill people and animals. So, you know, it's really interesting to like try and it's trying to assess the sort of again the 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 correct way to go about interrogating their role in in FPS. It's like the the way I would put this, and I appreciate this is a bit of a ramble, but. You know, I think the 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 fact that receiver can be just a sort of interesting thing, partly because, uh, as you said, Tom, you're using these devices to dismantle other devices. Right? Yeah, you you you're ta- you're learning the anatomy of these turrets and taking them apart. Um, whereas if you if if you were uh, fighting or firing at believable characters in that game, then. Um, it would have a completely different message. It wouldn't be able to avoid having yeah. a different message. And so the question is, is the fact that you're fighting robots in a lonely street also an act of ambivalence, or is it a kind of, you know, a, a, an atmospheric flourish? Like, it's it's so complicated. Like, where that enters, I think, is a piece of art, basically. And it's, I think it exists on the axis of, like, axis of, like, if this makes you feel a certain way effectively, then I think it probably does function as art, like the discomfort that you're, you're describing. Um but it's it's very rare that you could find a piece of art that could also be interpreted by someone else as a toy that supports the opposite view. Mm. Yeah, there's certainly a sense that um, if you're going to be like uncharitable, uh, interpret it in an uncharitable way, in that is like having it both ways, mm. where yeah. you get to do the hobbyist stuff, you get to love guns, but you don't have to deal with any of the actual consequences of what guns do <laughs> because yeah. you just you're you're just shooting. Um, pieces of shit um which is i think i'd give it a bit more credit than that i think Mm. um because i think it it doesn't want to create it doesn't want to make people miserable (laughs) it's uh it's yeah it's weird like this is also like a going even deeper deeper into what games are actually for um i think like the way people approach games that they want to play a game to be entertained and Mm. ultimately feel powerful or have fun um and so to actually come out of a game feeling miserable is just not the same. So I'd, I'd go in and watch um, a movie. I'd watch like Requiem for a Dream and uh, be like, oh, that was fucking horrible. <laughs> but I'm glad I watched it. That's right. not, that, does, that doesn't exist for games, I don't think. Um, so if they were to actually put people in it and sort of try to make a point about guns in that way, I just think it, it wouldn't be a viable product. <laughs> um, that's a horrible way to put yeah. it. Yeah, well, but I you know what I mean, right? Like, it, you know, it, its context is always going to be Steam, right? Yeah, and it right. will, it's always going to be sat next to 
don't know, Destiny and Hunt Showdown, just to talk about games that I play, both yeah. of which involve shooting things and both of which couch those things in just enough fantasy to turn it into something that I don't associate with the real world or the real mm. world consequences of those uh, those devices, right? Like they, yeah. they abstract all of the different elements of that, um, the the real, you know, all of the different, uh, you know, real things uh, that are going on there. And, and obviously Hunt is also express, expl- explicitly just unpleasant to be in. You know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, in, in every possible way, uh, it, except it being a good game. And so, yeah, it's always going to be presented in an entertainment context. We don't have the same set of kind of cultural approaches to games where it's like you, uh, you, you know, you, cinemas are a, um, not a culturally neutral space by any means, but we kind of accept that they can contain anything from art cinema to horror movies to kids' movies to, you know, uh, blockbuster movies. And yeah. something, there's some, um, some, the audience is, is maybe multiple audiences are expected for one thing and audiences are expected to kind of have a sense of what, what, what particular thing they're looking for when they go in. Whereas I'm not sure that games, you know, the places where you get games are necessarily even organized in that way or approached in that way, which is kind of an interesting problem for anything like this. Like, I think if you put receiver in an art gallery, you inevitably get a different yeah take on it. That's, yeah. That's a really good point actually. Yeah, uh, but I think it, it, the the way it was released was weird as well because it was sort of announced a week before and then suddenly came out, mm. um, and then lots of people have played it and really enjoy it because it is a good game. Um, but I feel like they had an opportunity to say more with that idea, yeah, uh, than they necessarily do. That it feels like there's definitely an intelligence behind that game that I feel should be more exposed in its presentation to everyone rather than being a thing that you sort of find for yourself. But I guess that's the nature of games as well, is that you have to um, you have to dig into all the every aspect of the game to actually discover what it's trying to say. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing more. I mean, again, it's it's annoying <laughs> as a game. As a, a sort of games critic brain says, yeah, the, the repetitive going through the same environments to find these tiny cassette tapes is irritating. Uh, mm. But these... Um, the weapons themselves and the way that they're kind of realized and the way that the game talks about those i think is fascinating can i um bring about a kind of tonal whiplash here by talking about sharks sharks <laughs> yes um aren't so... they really nature's gun <laughs> well basically <laughs> basically so um i uh, i i actually had i think i played and completed um tripwire interactives man eater which came out a couple of weeks ago now and i actually i think i played and, and completed it it would have had played it and completed it in time for last week's podcast so uh forgive me some of this is a little shaky i'm back to it today to kind of uh refresh my feelings on it um uh, man eater, so tripwire are the people who made killing floor um which um was the kind of left for dead uh game that had many of its own qualities and, and was very very popular they've made this um single player open world shark game and the it's it's so deeply six out of ten that i was actually a little <laughs> bit worried when you said you were going to be on the podcast tom because i assumed you <laughs> played it and know everything about it so i'm actually kind of delighted that you haven't played it yet but it should be on your list excellent um it's i i i have fond feelings about it but i kind of want to articulate what it is because i find it kind of interesting and i think part of its appeal for me is nostalgia what it feels like more than anything else 
is like a first generation launch Xbox 360 game. The 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 um the production values are obviously higher than that. It looks modern in a lot of ways, but it has that exact feel of like we have one high concept and not a ton of money, and we're going to make something that you should probably rent from old Netflix when they would mail <laughs> you a game in a little envelope, like um back in back in the olden days. Um, in those days, it is. Um, it's so sort of like it has one thing, which is you're going to be a big shark and you're going to munch things, and it spins us out over an open world with sort of uh, kind of uh, uh, templated activities in the way that mods often are now. Like each little zone has its own things to do, and it's the same set of things to do in every zone. And then there's a story that weaves through these zones. And things to collect and things to 100%. But unlike um, any other game with the structure, any Assassin's Creed game, you can 100% the whole thing in like 9 or 10 hours. Like, it's not very big. Like, I, I think I finished it in 6. And um, that's, what it, that's what I think locates it in this perfect uh, rental territory, as does its overall feeling of, like, light, light cheapness. Um, it feels efficiently project-managed in a way that I appreciate <laughs> But um, <laughs> but sort of uh, like keeps its scope within a very very specific set of set of experiences, and I'll talk about what they are. Tonally, it is a bit like imagine this scenario: you have just finished your dream game, and it is three D, uh, beautiful three D Echo the Dolphin. Okay, and so then you take this game to the publisher, and you explain what it is, and the publisher's not sure, and the publisher knows that gta vice city has just come out or something like that and can you make it more like that and and maybe also the publishers kids and this is breaking the timeline a bit the publishers kids are really into deadpool and could you take your undersea oceanic adventure wildlife game and maybe see if there's any way this could be like deadpool and um that's what they made and manager is the game you get out of that process it has the very specific energy i think of like a noughties BMX game, um, but you are a shark, and um, and that I think has an interesting relationship with its sort of slight feeling of cheapness and the fact that it's pretty six out of ten because you, you in a very different context to the discussion we were just having. The first thing is like, is this deliberately ironic or not? Like, is this is this maybe the world's first ironic six out of ten? Um, <laughs> because actually, the other side of it is it plays into that in some really fun ways. The premise of the game. Um, is that you are watching one of those really bad American wildlife shows, not like uh, deep, you know, uh, you know, uh, like Planet Earth or, or something like that, but like one of those like kind of trashy, like deadliest catch type, extreme reused footage of Alaskan men falling off boats shows. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but I once uh, stayed with a friend at Columbia University in the US and he couldn't fall asleep unless he was listening to Deadliest Catch really loudly. <laughs> and I slept and I slept under a table in his little, <laughs> like room at Columbia. And uh, he was like, is it okay if I put something on so I can go to sleep? And like the first thing is like, it's a deafening crashing wave. And then like, if they don't get this haul in, all six of these men will die. Uh, and, and it only got more extreme from there. Um, and the catch is only more deadly. It basically has this energy. It's set in like, it's set in like a G GTA, GTA fied Louisiana. Um, GTA fied the fact that it's a fictional city, but it's basically New Orleans, but it's also much more of a mishmash of different, uh, you know, American things. It's only you know, in the southeast, 
little bit of Florida to it as well. Um, and um, and it is this a bit like GTA as well. It's this horrible world of uh, decrepit, indolent human dipshittery, basically, um, where the 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 bayou and and the the bay and the ocean itself is just full of human garbage and it's awful and shit and you are this sort of like um edgy noughties punk shark of like eco vengeance um and the the game begins with um but the notion is that there's a camera crew following one particular uh shark hunter um uh, called scaly pete uh, in the beginning of the game, you play as uh, an adult bull shark who you learn the controls, uh, which I'll get into the mechanics in a minute. But you, you learn the controls, and then um, you fall afoul of of Scaly Pete. And this is, I mean, this is spoilers for the first ten minutes of the game. But um, he murders this shark, who turns out to be your mother, um, and uh, rips a, a, a bull shark pup. Uh, out of her carcass that bullshock pup which is you then bites his hand off and <clears throat> dives into the bayou and then you're a baby shark uh making your way in the world and getting bigger by eating things until you can uh in, go into a series of boss fights with this man and his boat and his son and it occasionally cuts back to these like possibly better acted than they should be cutscenes, which are then episodes of the show which start with like it's kind of funny this guy's extremely extreme um it's all very too it's all very turned up to 11 um and then you know has then towards in the second half of the game has the camera crew genuinely worried about this person's uh actions and state and it's it's kind of very very strange the other thing about it that uh sells this is when you are the shark and you are the shark the rest of the time um the narrator of the tv show is still present um and the narrator is played by Chris Parnell, um, who is uh, in done tons of comedy, American comedy, um, TV and cartoons. He's Dr. Spachemin from 30 Rock and he's in Archer and um, Family Guy and uh, American Dad, I think. Tons of those sorts of things. Rick and Morty is the dad in Rick and Morty as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, it's got that particular kind of, this is where the Deadpool thing comes in, I think. The, that sort of you know sardonic sense of humor which can grate because i think it's very of a particular type of humor which i think if i just said 30 rock family guy uh maybe 30 rock family guy rick and morty then you'll know where that is but some of it is genuinely funny and it works quite well alongside what i would say is the gta inspired uh grotesque depiction of humanity um in fact it's a, it's a device that almost adds a bit of um warmth and and um consistency to that um from a just the voice of the game standpoint like uh gta asks you to understand that the houses are being ironic or something like this this makes it very very clear and also you're a shark um so um and you know that is also expressed through like for some reason you can hear the radio of shark hunters that get sent after you and they're all idiots basically um uh, and the uh, the game sort of it has it sort of sets you up to go on these uh, shark rampages, and actually, rampage would also be one of its influences. I think like um, it's a it's a monster movie, and you are the monster, and that's kind of the 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 thrill of it. And it sets up the fact that you're munching 
Like, there would be an interesting horror game to make out of Jaws, essentially, to make out of the premise of being this sort of stalking killer where uh, every, just from a fictional point of view, where every kind of, um, you know, uh, death that you inflict is, is serious and the result of a lot of planning. This isn't that. This is a game where you can surge out of the sea um, into a rave, a beachside rave, and flop on your belly around the rave, just munching person after person after person after person <laughs> to hit a, a, like a, 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 a tally before leaping back into the sea and getting some points. Um, you can also, uh, the way the controls work is you have, you, you're swimming around in, in 3D under the water, and then when you're on the surface, you move a bit faster and your fin is at the top of the water. You can jump out of the water. You have a dodge move with an invincibility frame, <laughs> which is used for evading gunfire, uh, harpoons fired by scuba divers, the attacks of other predatory animals. Um, and you uh, you also have like limited ability to survive on land, which you can upgrade. Um, I'm going to talk about shark upgrades in a minute because we're going some places for this. Um, and you, can, um, you have a tail swipe stun attack. Um, which is mostly useful when fighting other um, creatures, but can be upgraded to let you knock people off boats. Um, the other way it works is so you you, you bite some you bite something. Uh, it's not like attack is an action; bite is kind of the action. So you press the right trigger to bite, and it's definitely a pad game. Um, and if you press, if you tap it, you'll just do a chomp. If you hold it, you'll bite and hold whatever that thing is. And if this is something that's substantially weaker than you you can then thrash it by waggling the stick to like shake it about and try and kill it. Or you can keep munching by hammering the trigger. Um, and then sometimes if you're fighting another creature, particularly that is about the same power as you, you have to wait for like them to have like, a uh, to be in a weak, to be in like the weak part of their attack animation. It's got like fighting game mechanics in there, like shark fighting. So if they're in the weak part of the animation, they globally free. If you grab them, then you can actually grab them and thrash them. But otherwise you've just got to fight and dodge. Um, you can also, and there are gameplay mechanics built around this, you can also, once you've got something in your mouth and you've grabbed it, um, if it's a human, it will drown <laughs> if you're under the water. So uh, this, uh, and if it finishes drowning and dies, you'll instantly eat it for health and XP and minerals, which you can spend on shark upgrades, which I'll get to. <laughs> oh my <gosh>. um, <laughs> um, if it's a, but while you've got something in your mouth, you can also leap out of the water. And if you use the uh, tail attack, the tail bash button while you're, out of the water and you have something in your mouth, you enter bullet time. And when you're in bullet time, you can then use the cursor to smart target whatever's in your mouth at something else in the environment, <laughs> drop it and baseball smash it with your tail. And so, you know, to give you an example of where this escalates, like it has a GTA style wanted system. If you start attacking humans, <laughs> sh shark hunters will come and the shark hunters will uh, chase you in boats. And if you if you then build up the it has a nice way of making that rewarding. If you build up the shark wanted meter enough, it's like a level. It's more like XP. It's like an XP bar and a wanted meter. If you get it to the top, a named character will come to join the hunt. <laughs> and if you can kill them, you get an upgrade and you progress and there are ten of them and that gets you to the maximum wanted level. And you can also run away and hide and if they lose track of you they'll they'll call off the search. Um um and um you know and so i remember going like towards the end of the game sometimes these get quite tricky it's not a hard game i died twice in six hours um i did all of it almost an autopilot and it was quite pleasant for that 
Um, but like I prepared for quite a significant encounter with one of these far more better armed shark hunting patrol boats by diving into the ocean, finding a turtle, swimming at it, and then diving out of the sea, battering the turtle directly into the <laughs> pilot of a boat, which knocks him into the sea, which means the boat now can't move, uh, which means I can activate my shark alt. And I want to... <laughs> and so you upgrade your shark. Um, your shark has equipment <laughs> and the equipment can be upgraded. And it's uh, it even has the World of Warcraft traditional system of rarity. But because this is a game of modest scope, um, there are only three armor sets in the game. Um, and really, you'll only get two of them because two of them are kind of unlocked along the critical path and the regular activities. And one of them, the Shadow Shark set, uh, requires you to to go to to do some of the kind of stuff finding uh, mini activities around the world and who can be asked. Um, so you you basically have essentially two parallel progressions. So you have actually, I want to say first that you have passive shark upgrades that you can plug in, and these are things like. Uh, becoming more amphibious and that means you can flop around on golf courses for longer killing people um or moving faster or gaining a boost when you're low on health or getting more minerals from the things you eat which is you know these are just playstyle builds basically uh and then you have this uh your equipment head fins body tail uh jaws um <laughs> And these are in sets, like I say. And and I think one of its weaknesses is the set bonuses are so good that you pick one and they're basically just play styles, really. Uh, you don't mix and match. And the, the primary two are the Bone Shark and the Bioelectric Shark. And um, I, I fully unlocked both and fully upgraded both. Um, but uh, I stuck with the Bone Shark. And once you, once you equip the body from a particular set, that gives you the Shark Ult for that set. Um, the, the bone shark, uh, you basically get covered in like keratin armor, essentially, and it upgrades your bite. It, it does things like when you dive out of the water and into the water, it creates a kind of damaging shockwave and things like this. Your tail bash knocks people off boats more often. And then you gain this alt where your entire body becomes encased in bone. And when you do your regular, uh, dash speed dash, um, you actually become more like a like a spinning barrel rolling shark drill bit that can just annihilate boats from below. <laughs> and so and like there's there's a particular satisfaction in like you'll be going around and even if you're not in a fight, your ult will charge up because it charges when you eat things. Um and you'll see just like a little uh a little flamingo pedal boat out on the lagoon and you just fucking annihilate it. People go flying this screaming. It's, it's it's very very silly the reason i preferred this this one to the bioelectric one is the, the first upgrade you get for the bioelectric tree is it turns your dodge with you know the dodge the the shark dodge with the iframe into a teleport where you turn into lightning and surge through the ocean and appear somewhere else uh and the the electric bioelectric shark alt encases you in lightning and adds lightning to your bites and you basically have this like shark EMP that shuts boats off. Um, and for me, this broke the fantasy a bit because you become this sort of <laughs> like electric shark terror rather than like for me, like I, you know, I've thought many, many times on 
the podcast about my particular fear of deep oceans and leviathans and things like that. And I've also liked a lot of movies with this theme, like not just um, Jaws, which is the obvious one, but like Deep Blue Sea and The Meg more recently than that. It's a, it's a very schlocky thing, but I enjoy it. And part of the enjoyment is that it's ultimately quite a terrestrial thing that's, you know, munching people, basically. It's a bit like with Jurassic Park, where when they give the dinosaurs superpowers, they lost something, right? As soon as they're literally, like, turning invisible and and stuff like that, it, it, it loses something for me. And I think this game gets there with the later abilities, particularly for the electric shock, because it's like, I'm not, I don't know what I am anymore. Like... <laughs> I'm a sort of like yeah, and like a like a digital sea beast. Uh, whereas the bone shark, at least, uh, its its power is predominantly the power of the power of the bone shark is physical. Is what I'm saying. You know where and you I, are with a bone shark. You do, and I, I can I can feel that somewhat. Um, it's very silly, uh, like and and it gets you through all of this in six hours, which is of just rolling around and, and munching things. Um, the 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 there's a few things about like like on the sur- for example on the surface i thought this would be a great pip pip game because it's really fun to like terrorize the sort of you know i like i say gta-ish kind of um uh awful humans of of this kind of like uh like you know decrepit late capitalist world that the game depicts um and and it has, you know, it'll set up those humans in a in a funny way and make sure that you know that they're assholes, um, whether they're kind of uh, preppy real estate developers buying up oceanfront property and, and reselling it for a huge profit until you leap out of the ocean and <laughs> flop down suburban, like manicured pathways, hiding in the swimming pools to re- to get some, to regain your oxygen bar and then leaping back out to like flop down the street to murder more people with your big chompy jaws and then shark ulting triumphantly back into the ocean. Um, you know, it, it, that's really fun. Uh, the reason I, th- and I think that's something people would enjoy as well is, uh, um, uh, but the other side of it is you are leveling up a lot and getting a lot of your resources by um, munching fellow sea creatures and it's not gratuitous but it is very bloody and I think is kind of befits the subject matter it's kind of nature you know red in tooth and claw um, they've done some sound design that is just like I know why they did it but Jesus Christ like when you kill a tortoise um, or a turtle uh, there's like this kind of squeeze pop sound which i can only describe as like it's extremely satisfying but awful like um it's it's kind of a bit sound design because i think that is satisfying for the shark but me the human piloting the shark feels a bit like sorry for the turtle and it's it's not like it has i think a kind of it's nudging towards an environmentalist message at the base of it but you are also a huge asshole and the one thing about it that did make me genuinely uncomfortable is you do get into fights with other sharks um, of various types, and then ultimately they're killer whales. Um, there are apex predators um, in each zone. So after you've cleared out some of the kind of um, sort of fish population of the zone, the apex predator for that zone will show up, which will be a, will be kind of themed after the the main predators that you encounter in that zone. And like initially, these are like. Uh, they've they've decided to like theme them and so like the first one is like rosie the riveter but a crocodile um and then the second the second one no the third one is like in this 
oceanfront golf course zone and it's a mako shark with a golf ball for an eye and you're like whatever and then later in the game like it's literally um the i've forgotten the name the whale that free willy was based on but Orcus. mean yeah i mean the, the literal whale like oh, right, you, right, right. you fight it in a sea world enclosure that you can get into oh for fuck's to sake. fight a whale <laughs> and um uh weirdly I wasn't weird. I, I didn't get ocean release at any part of this except that part. Apparently, I'm afraid of deep swimming pools. That was my discovery. Um, uh, I also want to give a shout out here to friend of pod, um, Paul Scott Canavan, who's afraid of oil rigs. And now, thanks to him, I'm afraid of oil rigs as well. Um, anyway, the. Um, uh, and then, you know, you, you, anyway, I, mean, if, I don't want to spoil the last one of these because it's also extremely dumb, but. When you're fighting these other creatures, they're the only creatures in the game and um, that have, uh, like, um, like limb damage. So if you bite a person, their leg will sometimes come off, and they'll they'll usually be dead at that point, or they'll be bleeding out. And for some reason, that's kind of cartoonish and funny. But they've done some. They've they've slipped. They've stepped wrong with the shark and whale specific locational damage. Because as you whittle down their health bars and, and munch on them, their fins and tail will eventually come off, but their um, but their attack profile doesn't change. And so they'll still be swimming around and doing stuff as if they were fine. And what this means is every fight against another shark or, or, or whale ends with you fighting a kind of bloody lozenge. That, uh, also, they shout and scream and yell. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like sharks roaring, which I know they don't do, but it's, it's like like so fish can scream. That's the other thing I've learned from this game. Um, what? They're, they're not always. It's quite well done, but it's sort of like you'll grab something and it'll go like ah, um, and it'll be like a marlin. You like? I don't think they do that, but fuck it. Um, and. Uh, and I, that is, I think, genuinely a little bit distressing. And I think if you are a nature mm. lover and you love sea creatures, then that would be enough to actually put you off the game. Like, it's all in this context of, like, hyper-violent grotesquerie that I think it doesn't ruin the game. But it was the re- it, it would be the reason that, like, if Pip wants to play it, I would suggest she play on my save file and just go m- have the fun munching people side of it and then not yeah. not bully the the turtles eventually you you do get an upgrade that makes other creatures ignore you so you're not getting other fish attacking you and that that helps a lot with that yeah i think the thing about nature though is that it is kind of it's not like that as you've if, no. uh, as you've described in this uh extremely silly game but um like an orca will fuck up a shark oh yeah uh, like, uh, like a, a a family of orcas moving to it uh, a region of the ocean near near a coast, and all the sharks just fucking evacuate because killer whales absolutely just munch those things. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. So if, if you're actually thinking about the the wild world, um, they're all eating each other all the time, and it's grotesque and it is bad. Not and this game is obviously a slapstick uh, sort of take on what it's like to be a shark, but I think it's hard to be sympathetic. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. In some <laughs> cases, just, yeah. In that in that context, yeah, you can't sympathise with the screaming fish. Just... <laughs> exactly, they're, they're going to get eaten. It's inter- like because it, the the narration is occasionally peppered with real facts that are actually genuinely quite interesting about sharks, and then also complete bollocks. So like you you go up through growth stages, so you go from like a pup to a teen shark to a mature shark to an <laughs> elder shark, and so on. So you become very big indeed. Mm. Um, 
And I think when you become an, an adult shark, it says the narrator says something like, "The shark has now entered adulthood, which means <laughs> greater financial responsibility <laughs> and less freedom." <laughs> and like, um, and it's so stupid. Like, anyway, um, the thing I would like to, finally want to say about it is like, it's such a kind of modest production. Like, it's quite a big world, but they've they've populated it with obviously repeated activities and to some cases repeated obviously fish. Um, and, and definitely, you know, repeated collectibles and things like that. There's a lot of, like, individual silliness packed into that. Like, you can find SpongeBob's house, because why the fuck not? <laughs> um, and it goes in some very specifically very silly directions. But I think ocean games particularly are so great for hiding cool things in, like, and Easter eggs and things. And it's clear that they're... You know, Subnautica is the perfect example of this. It's clear that their budget for this or their scope for this doesn't extend to that, really. Like, I'm almost worried that that's a little bit of a spoiler. That there isn't much more to discover than it appears on the surface. Um, but it feels like a little bit of a missed opportunity because I think there's genuinely quite a special game here where in addition to all this really daft core loop stuff, you're also being rewarded for just exploring the sea. Like... That's the other half of the Echo the Dolphin kind of analogy, where that game also had a lot of a simple core loop in a lot of ways, but also felt kind of very genuinely exploratory. This this doesn't. It has that Ubisoft thing of ultimately making every zone feel somewhat the same. Um, there there are deeper oceans later on, and, and bigger bigger fish and bigger boats, and they need bigger boats, and they get them, and it does make that joke. Um, but but yeah, but actually, I think at this particular time, I was kind of in the mood for a a game like this it's so strange and just makes its point and then ends <laughs> you know what i mean yeah like so, um, so like yeah. very unch- un- uh, uncharitably um the first time i saw this game i thought it was a kind of youtube bait a bit like mm. ghost simulator something right. like that uh, but it sounds from what you described like there is actually some some fun there to be had that is i think someone had a vision for this yeah like they mm. they it's it's not badly written by any means it's genuinely funny at times um it feels like it's yeah it's it's sort of kind of nasty in the way that Naughty's BMX games are nasty. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, it could yeah. also be a demolition derby game, but you're a shark. Like it's in that kind of mm. um, cheap thrills kind of category. It's not, it's not prurient at all, really. And actually um, like it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it does have heart and I, I like that about it, but it's like I said at the start top of this that like it's the definition it feels to me like the definition of a rental um I think what that translates now is like it's such a either a perfect steam sale game or given the way things are moving it's like it's one of those games where if it shows up on your free list for something like humble monthly or epic game store or which is I think it's exclusive to epic at the moment or you know your Xbox game pass or something like that what I would say is this is the one that you download, right? Like mm-hmm. y- a lot of like six out of 10 games pass without necessarily being worth the uh, 20 gig or whatever it would, it would take to get them downloaded. This is one that I think you do download because uh, if, if, if nothing in that premise puts you off because um, it's just very fun to be a, uh, to be a bone shark and to, to bone <laughs> shark around. Um, yeah. I think it's like, yeah. it, I have, I'm going to be annoyed at myself as, as I say this, but um, um, it's really annoying to compare games to cinema, but B-movie... Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. ...is is a comparison, I think, that applies here. 
Yeah, it is. And I think, I mean, I think it's other great influences, Sharknado, which is in that category. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Right, like, the shark on land stuff is definitely in that territory <laughs> rather than any yeah, of the yeah. other ocean movies I mentioned. Like, um, it's, you know, I think, you, I mean, you said nature's gun. It's more like you're kind of nature's chainsaw and you're just, <laughs> just going places doing things. Like, um, it's... It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely in that category. And like the other thing, it's, it's got good NPC barks for when people are being eaten, which is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> um, I mean, because they have to have, you know, like people talk a lot about the thankless job of game writing being like writing 400 ways to someone to scream grenade. Um, but actually, yeah. from playing this, I think the job of finding 400 ways for people to scream, I'm being eaten by a shark, um, which someone actually does shout. Um, <laughs> Must have been fun because <laughs> um, it's good. Basically, I liked it. It's uh, it was like I, I have to say, you know, I played I played it all in like a couple of days, and this was a week and a half ago now. Um, so while things were locked down, awful, but not kind of truly uh, shocking as as they have been over the last couple of days, and and at that time, I want to say in that context, it was it was a really nice uh, uh reprieve from from that particular set of psychological conditions i don't know if 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 it would necessarily fulfill the same role right now but um i think kudos to tripwire for making a game no one asked them to make <laughs> like and um and, and yeah uh and just yeah nature is returning <laughs> exactly. humans are the virus bone shark um <laughs> Marsh, I believe you have uh, additional takes to dispense. I do, yes. Actually, it's sort of related to what you were saying about uh, you know, going, playing a soothing game, a respite game. Um, because when the, when things did take uh, a turn for the truly bleak over the weekend, I couldn't really face going back and playing Stone Shard any longer uh, for obvious reasons. Um, uh, but uh, I retreated basically to uh, games that I considered to be my happy place, which have sort of been um, nice, soothing experiences in the past. Uh, I remember in the in the wake of the 2016, probably probably the Brexit uh, vote, I went and played The Witness for the first time, um, and that was that was a very rest, you know, restful experience. But also played Fez. Um, oh. I, I think actually, on reflection, Fez might have secretly and slowly become my favourite game of all time. I didn't realize realize this until coming back to it now <laughs> for maybe the fourth fourth time um but it's it's just a uh, it's an astonishing piece of work but it's just an amazing to me how uh holistic an experience it is how attentive it is in every aspect and it's really i mean it's just rare in general to find a game that's just such this brilliant kind of unity of purpose that everything has been mm. so considered that every pixel movement sound and reference and joke is all pulling in the same direction but it's even doubly more rare i think for that level of consistency and effort to have been applied to a platformer because i think um i mean even even the the, the greatest of mario games you know it, they are in some sense quite throwaway in that the the pleasures are manifestly rooted in the joy of movement in in the in in the joy of platforming and yet in Fez, I mean I don't want to to say that it becomes truly profound but I think it really builds without any kind of ostentational pre pretension into something really beautiful. Uh, hmm. I don't think it's wrong to say it's not 
I think it is profound. Like um, based on what you, the way you talked about the game before, Marsh. I, I like I associate Fez with uh, Cave Story mm. a bit, but um, actually Fez has things to say about the structure of the universe, which yeah. is a fucking crazy <laughs> thing for a, a like a, a platformer to do. And I remember us having a conversation years ago, in fact, on this podcast, um, and which, which we turned it to a video, and I think that summed up some of the kind of almost transcendental themes that are present in Fez, uh, even in spite of its like apparently constrained two-dimensional form. Yeah. I I yeah, it's I think that the, the sort of takeaway from it is it's not uh there's no kind of explicit philosophy that it's putting forward. Um unlike the witness, which which I hope I'll, I'll get to, but the sure. uh, I mean it it does just do things in describing like the the it has two different endings to the to the game. I, I know I've talked about this before, but one sort of um, pans down and down and down uh, until it it kind of elegantly and quite playfully describes the kind of smallest quotient of of matter that can exist in this beautiful kind of beyond the infinite sequence and then the the other ending you get is it pans up and up and up until you see an, a sort of elegant visual representation of the multiverse and i don't think that it has anything particular to say about those things uh but it, it, it's just like let's celebrate the universe yeah yeah just like let's celebrate the reality the reality we're in which is joyous it really is it is uh, there's just uh it's it's really frustrating as a platformer as well and it's just it's just a joy to be in that world. I don't, I'm surprised that nobody's taken on that the gimmick and done it elsewhere. Because, I mean, just to briefly explain, Fez is uh, a puzzle platform which is set in a, a 2D world which undergoes this sort of moment of spatial revelation where you, this sort of malformed creature called Gomez, <laughs> are suddenly gifted the ability to rotate the universe and reveal that it's actually in three dimensions. But you're only able to move when it's locked down to two but this gives you the kind of ability to sort of collapse depth and platformers that look far apart in one sort of orthogonal viewpoint can be rotated so that they appear side by side in another but like that the, i mean the game is is a long game and it has so much variety within it in the way that it approaches that um that that language i don't really know why other games haven't sort of dipped their toe into that and just stolen it i just i just think like very few studios are sophisticated enough to actually take on that challenge in the way that that game did. Yeah, that, that's like a very generalist and possibly stupid thing to say, but I'm not sure like who could do that better. Yeah, I mean it has been done. It's just I, I, I suppose I mean I don't don't think anybody would necessarily do it better or more exhaustively than this game. But I mean I'm surprised that nobody's tried just to repeat it. Sure. Um, but I, I mean, the other thing about it is the soundtrack, which is already one of my sort of like favorite pieces of music to listen to. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just awesome. the way it's woven into the game. I mean, the, most soundtracks sort of convey an aesthetic or, or, you know, maybe optimistically they mirror the player's actions or something like this. But I don't think there's that many games which are just so synchronized with the world and the things in it in a way which sort of talks about the technology with which it's constructed mm. as well. It's just yeah. such a literate piece of music. So kind of discursive of gaming and its history. And <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm sort of just uh, jizzing uncontrollably at this point, but uh, <laughs> uh, it is, you know, most, most games are just about, especially platformers, 
especially chiptune you know it's, it's mostly about delivering right. banging right. tunes for you to bounce to but this is just it's just another level of artistic depth really but that's the, there's this moment when you actually <laughs> your little dude puts on the fez for the first time which gives him the revelation of like oh my god there are more dimensions and that allows him to traverse into um you know actually you know rotate levels and stuff um and it's such a kind of it's like a sort of ascendancy like that the mm. music for that it, where it, it's it's there's no beat in it it's just like purely like escalating chords that result in enormous like choral f- finish that is it's almost like it like um that sounds dumb but you know what i mean like, <laughs> that, that, that is what it's like yeah like it, it's like um oh he's actually seen beyond reality and actually become something else yeah. this tiny little 2d character um and that's such a wonderful thing about fez that i've not <laughs> had in many games at all yeah yeah it's oh, good, well, isn't it? It is really good. If, if, if nobody's, if somebody hasn't played Fez, like there's absolutely no reason not to to immediately go and do it. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking great. But the the other game I wanted to talk about was um, The Witness, which is also a sort of a puzzle game. It's more directly a, a puzzle. To use the Tom the Tom Cross's taxonomy. It's a you know it's it's a puzzle puzzle game. Um, <laughs> uh, from um, uh, uh, John Blow and his team. I forget the name of the larger development studio. Um, but it's set on an, an island, uh, it's a beautiful island, covered in a particular kind of, a singular kind of line-drawing puzzle, the par- parameters of which are sort of pushed and pulled, um, in, again, a, an almost exhaustive way. Um, and it was, and it, like, like I said before, I played it in uh, 2016, and it was just this perfect refuge from what was an awful, <laughs> awful time. Yeah. And uh, both of those games just feel like the perfect place to be right now. And the Island of the Witness is just so gorgeous and, it's gorgeous, and restive. Yeah. I, t- I tell you what, it reminds me a lot of Port Myrian. I don't know if you've been there mm. in Wales. I have. My grandfather helped build Port Myrian. No way! Yeah, what way. That's, yeah. that's fucking awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> It's it's I mean Port Myron is is like a it, it was built I mean was it no it wasn't built for the set of uh, the prisoner the TV series was it it predated no. that but it was it, it has always been this sort of place of folly right it's not I mean people <laughs> yeah no in, in in an architectural sense like they they are literally architectural follies like they're not necessarily yeah, entirely places for habitation or or places of the purpose they've been designed architecturally just to delight. And it's this weird sort of eclectic mix of weird buildings. Mm. I, I really yeah. get the same vibe from the the Witness Island, but it's but it's also like deserted and peaceful. And sometimes it seems like it's been deserted for centuries because there's these crumbling ruins. And other times it feels like it was deserted moments ago because there's like a sliced apple resting on a plate somewhere. And I just love the fact you can, and it's the audio is beautiful uh, and uh, you know, just evocative of being on this gorgeous sunlit island. Um, I love that you can just fucking run everywhere at the speed of like a galloping horse as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, most importantly, that it's it, the puzzles sort of occupy enough of my brain that it just quietens down just the the continual buzz of pure terror that is now obviously our natural state as humans 
Mm. I like the. I think. I think you maybe have actually outlined what I see as your perfect form of entertainment there, which is to gallop at the speed of a horse, <laughs> but in a context with real literary credibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would like to gallop at the speed of a, a, a free and, and beautiful horse, but I would also like to be in James Joyce's Ulysses. Like, that's. That, <laughs> that's your vibe. Well, it's interesting you you say this uh, because uh, I, I sort of wanted to talk about uh, the more philosophical aspects of the witness, which on the on the first time I played it, I sort of dismissed um, because it, uh, you you can play it as this pure puzzle game, and it's just it is uh, I mean really just just puzzle one puzzle after another, and it just rings out every possible way of using these puzzles. Um, it is attached to um, a larger philosophical thing, and I, I kind of feel like it's 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 kind it unlike Fez, which is just the, the you know whatever profundity there is in Fez is completely integrated in what Fez is. Whereas I feel like the Witness, it it's very kind of a bit of a dichotomy. Like there's just these this relentless sort of puzzle sequence, and then aside from that, there are sort of quite bluntly an external. Um, big ideas which are delivered through um uh quotes from philosophers and scientists of the past video clips uh and some little f fictional notes as well so uh Marsh, did you find that um the philosophy of the game actually binded with the puzzle structure well yes and no i mean no because the first time i did it i i didn't um i didn't really connect the two things i mean I, I, like mm. it's, I, I understood at a surface level uh there is there's obviously a relationship between puzzle solving and the ideas of endeavor and intellectual discovery that are otherwise you know yeah, part right. of that sort of and also like also almost like um uh interpretations of nature into um intellectual paradigms so for example the, the symmetry puzzles you do mm. for rocks um, very early in the game, um, on the water, it's almost like just transcribing uh, a beautiful thing in nature to quite a profoundly uh, rubbish version <laughs> intellectually, but somehow it creates understanding. I don't know. I, don't, I, I was kind of curious about how you experienced that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's such... It goes in a lot of different places and it just talks about a lot of different things. And I think this is the, a, a weakness mm. of its presentation is that um, it's the the lack of structure makes it feel like it's just a lot of different disparate ideas that aren't necessarily coming together and in, into a single sort of argument or or, or even sort of direction um yeah. and i think that that was my kind of resistance to it was compounded by the fact that i didn't really connect with braid which was blow's previous game uh at, at its philosophical level um because although I, I kind of got what it was getting at with its yeah. narrative i felt it was just sort of needlessly obfuscatory about it and uh and although the ideas were interesting in themselves the, the, the language that was used to, to kind of frame them dramatically was just a little bit kind of tawdry and overwrought so i just yeah. i just didn't give it the time uh the first time i played the, the witness I, I, I think my my experience is like it feels like a fucking gcse test <laughs> which, uh, sorry, which I mean? one both or Oh, both, yeah, both definitely. Um, in the uh, oh, do you have the intellectual and educational uh, bandwidth to actually 
eventually interpret this and it's like fuck off (laughs) (laughs) like honestly just fuck off like I mean, yes, I do, but why should I devote my attention to you? Why should I devote my attention to this piece of art um, when there are many people who are working much harder to actually communicate things? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it goes back to the difficulty thing, right? I mean, do, right, you, do you trust yeah. this developer to have something interesting to say and how much effort should you put in finding out that they don't? Right. But yeah. I think they do. I think there is something interesting. So this time I took a different approach. I was, I was just because... I. Maybe because I wasn't playing it to finish it. Maybe because I was playing to return to it, you know, and, and just return to the space. I was just able just to kind of sit down and uh, just watch the little video clips and things um, without a, a sense of impatience that it wasn't going anywhere. And I, in the end, it felt more like there isn't really an argument. It is more about there is a just a bunch of curated stuff. And each of the individual things was this time to me sufficiently interesting in and of themselves mm. that i was i i had the patience to sit through it but do, do you want me to to tell you what i, I think it's about <laughs> if i've got it right yeah yeah please do actually because um i'm confused about it <laughs> so i think i mean this is the thing i don't think it's really singular in any way it is just this kind of whirlwind of different ideas and i think it's intentional that it doesn't set on a single thesis because ultimately it is about the pursuit of truth and it's a and ultimately it complicates the idea of of whether that pursuit is worthwhile and what truth is and so it can't really ultimately sit on a single kind of point of view and it presents things which are contradictory but it i mean it's so so truth seeking is is a is a sort of noble endeavor that seems to be like a, a major theme of it uh and then get that game and this is the way it connects most tightly with the game itself because it's sort of saying that games are a way of helping us explore and flex our truth-seeking abilities right mm. um I, I yes i know hmm. um yep. <laughs> but but and also i also shark <laughs> <laughs> the noble truth of the bone shark nature's chainsaw <laughs> oh there we go yeah um and also so i mean so yes so there's truth-seeking snowball there's different kinds of um truth there's like scientific objective truth uh which is perhaps you might consider more true in some ways than interpretive subjective truth but in fact Mm -hmm. interpretive subjective truth is often more useful to us but then it starts to sort of complicate that because it says well truth truth isn't a puzzle like actually reality is not a puzzle reality is reality and sometimes we just apply our pattern recognition skills to situations that don't warrant them and come out kind of reeling right. in conspiracy mm. theory and conjecture okay. and um and also art isn't a puzzle the value of like great art isn't that meanings are cleverly hid within it necessarily it's that it yeah. communicates often mm-hmm. um and then and then kind of like it's sort of ultimate kind of philosophical denouement is to sort of undercut itself altogether by presenting counter arguments um, about not only our limitations to even perceive truth, but also whether it will make us happy. And there's... Or even be useful. Yeah. There's there's like clips of um, spiritual leaders in that. I forget who they are. I wasn't familiar with them beforehand, who suggest that actually um, you should 
stop trying to seek things. You stop trying to feel like you need something else because you are actually whole in yourself. You're comp capable of being content and everything else that you feel is just the noise generated by your needy animal body. And I think actually this is really the only point which I think is straight up fucking bullshit in the entire thing. <laughs> um, I, so, I strongly disagree with that. For one thing, I don't think yeah. I actually have an innate ability to be content. But also, <laughs> also, I think they've got it exactly the wrong way around. Like, I mean, I don't disagree with their end point view. But if I were to make the argument that one should stop needing as much, one should stop seeking as much, it would not be that we are already whole. I would say it's because we are in, innately imperfect and incapable of completion. And this is, this, is, this is genuinely something that I dwell on a lot. Uh, and specifically, the phrase I heard, I've, I don't know anything else about the philosopher Raymond Tallis, but I remember listening to him on a Radio 4 program maybe 15 years ago or something like this. And a phrase he used really stuck with me. And he described the human condition. I know this sounds really pretentious, but he calls it the human wound, a life of incomplete meanings. And that just, that just, you know, when you hear an idea and it just sort of slots perfectly into a hole in your yeah. brain, and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is our nature to be like these partial beings that can never answer the questions that roil around inside of us. Yeah. So, you, uh, if you, if you, sorry. Can I, can uh, I, I, I'm, I'm on a roll here, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, please go ahead if you want to. And it just feels like this is the motor that drives so much of human nature from from our inquisitiveness to like our to our acquisitiveness, like our desire for money or power or sex or religious belief or, you know, people desiring booze or drugs. And even if we don't have like the articulacy to understand why any of this is happening to us. I think we're all looking for the thing, you know, that just that one fucking thing that will finally fix us and make us complete. And none of those things will ever do that because we have a hole in our soul and it cannot be filled. <laughs> and that's, so that's, you know, can that's I, my thesis. I think we all suffer from a sort of metaphysical dysmorphia. Can I leap in here with a, maybe to complicate that slightly? Is that all right? Sure. I think you. I think. I think you. I think. I mean, I appreciate this is a different podcast at this point, but I think. <laughs> I think that trends in the right direction, but I, I don't agree that someone's, um, pursuit, you know, pursuit of intellectual or, or spiritual um, wholeness, and and maybe you're right. The the, the fact that either for some or for all that that is impossible is is quite the same thing or part of the same system, as. Uh, our acquisitiveness or our kind of um, uh, search for, um, you know, material completeness in that way. And I think the evidence for that is that, um, well, I would argue that um, the fear of scarcity and the desire to show yourself up and feel safe from scarcity is definitely extremely human, but I also don't think it's necessary. <laughs> and I think it's a very particularly uh, entrenched part of our culture that we valorize and that um that uh we see as natural and default but it isn't and it's interesting to be having this conversation in, in the light of video games i think the thing about the witness is it doesn't it doesn't expose you to any danger other than this kind of existential threat of having the 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 donut hole in the middle of the world pointed out for you um the the rest of games uh <laughs> not to be too broad about it but a lot of you know games give people ways to 
quickly leap on to usually an acquisitive kind of treadmill and uh, extract all of the value from from that thing. That this is the only most tangential kind of fucking thread I could use to link Manny to the witness. But <laughs> but it's you know that's a that's a, a a thing that I was capable of consuming and that fit my desire to just complete some tasks and be told a story and 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 acquire things and finish the armor sets and get all of the points and leave. And it taps into that part of my brain. But I also think. That is a that that part of it is massaging something that's fundamentally cultural and that is built into the way we structure our uh, political and economic systems and everything else, rather than something that's essential to the human condition. That would be my argument. I but I think one of the reasons that that is so easy to bolt and make feel de- default in our culture is because you're probably right. It is related to the otherwise searching emptiness <laughs> at the heart of the human, uh, you know, uh, the human being, or at least. Yeah for us <laughs> what were you going to say tom before i steamrolled you in my bullshit oh oh no it certainly wasn't bullshit um i, I, I was just um i was thinking about like how like why we seek uh to fulfill ourselves with fiction and with um devices like video games or movies or television as though that's supposed to fill some sort of hole, uh, is, uh, and as though like that is surely a misguided quest. Like you can, um, you can gain catharsis through that, or understanding, or kind of just entertainment. But I think for video games, it's like a mission. Mm. Can it actually fulfill that program? Like, <laughs> well, this is sort of like a, it may be uh, the fact that John Blow has devoted his life to trying expressing giant philosophical things in line tracing puzzle games is is sort of the art in itself. That's <laughs> uh, that's so in it. That's, that is subpar. <laughs> I think, Frankly, I think that so. is a subpar expression of philosophy. <laughs> um, he made a fucking stupid line tracing game <laughs> about important things. Why didn't he just like make a game up about the important things straight up? He might not be able to, he might not be able you know, to gamify it otherwise. You, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, put it all, like it's like what we were talking. Uh, I was talking about receiver. Like, mm-hmm. if you've got something to say, fucking say it. <laughs> right, but this is kind of what I find interesting, yeah. and, and I think I think one of the things one of the things games do is they make you feel kind of they give, they give you a, a safe environment, and this is true of play, not just video games or, or games sure. broadly. They give you a safe environment in which to um, interact with challenges and and uh, narrative structures and and ideas and emotions and dramas and stuff that you don't encounter somewhere else. And and I think in a broader sense, they give you kind of mastery over or the promise of mastery over a little environment that, that is there for you um, and for you to uh, explore that you don't have the rest of the time. They're, you know, uh, sanctuaries in that way. And I think that's often how they fit into people's uh, lives in, in a way that actually goes above and beyond what other kinds of entertainment can do. Um, and that's one of the cause to their appeal. And I think it's also one of the reasons why it's so strange um, and so... And it evokes such an extreme reaction in people when the sort of the sanctity of those environments is um, challenged, or when it is, cha- or when the games themselves don't feel safe in that way. And I think receivers are an example of this because, as we're talking about it, as we talked about it earlier, I think we we all 
are uneasy about the things that it raises, right? Tommy's hand, mm. you sounded uneasy about some of its connotations. There's the pleasure yeah, of sure. the thing. It is this Definitely. safe environment. It is this way of playing with something. But a part of you, an intellectual and a moral part of you, can't ex- can't can't fully accept that that is totally safe because it has, yep. um, because it has so many profound real world uh, but, consequences. But the game does speak to that as well, like right. It makes you feel uneasy, and therefore you have an uneasy relationship with it. Because that's kind of what games do. It's kind of what we were talking about, right? Like your Steam library is just a list of different kind of environments to dip yourself into. And you kind of expect them all to be entertainment in a very particular way. And then similarly, I think I think this is one of the reasons why um, this is maybe to spin this point. I appreciate we're, we're, we're fezzing this thing. We're just zooming out and out and out. <laughs> um, like, I think this is one of the reasons profoundly why um, one of the reasons why business model and the uh is so so evocative in, in and why it receives the react when changes to business models or business models that are perceived to be exploited or changes in them get such a visceral reaction from games audiences and it's because money and the way that you gain games and the way that money is extracted from you in games sometimes is probably the most profound way in which games tap into the fundamental lack of safety people experience in the real world does that make sense? Like the thing I'm trending towards here is that capitalism is the problem, and I suspect it probably is. But the that's that's why that's why I think it upsets people so much because the promise of these spaces is that they are free of of those constraints, or that they re they reconfigure or recontextualize them in a way that puts you at the center of them for the only time in your life. And <laughs> and as soon as that gets taken away, as soon as a game moves to a store where people don't feel like they could download it or they can't afford it, that the the real world comes crashing back in and all of its inequities and all of its uh problems and all of the um the the ways in which that you aren't centered and yeah and and that i think is why it's it's such a kind of powerful thing and i think i think there is something in this and like in, and in the fact that what i think this identifies for me is that the job of games most of the time is to be an escape and that's why it's natural to have a tricky relationship with them, with our reactions to them in a time like this. And in a, in, in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange time to be working on them. It's, it's, it's a strange time to be talking about them. And yeah, I'm, 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 this, this shark needs to flop back into the sea now because I'm running out of air. But like, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think, it's it's impossible not to have a complicated relationship with the idea of escaping at a time when you also have moral responsibilities in a lot of different directions. And I don't have a solution to that other than maybe capitalism is the problem, <laughs> basically. I don't I don't think we should feel ashamed about escaping into games. I think um no. that that's the entire purpose of the medium and we should enjoy them as much as possible. And as long as we're paying attention to our loved ones and everything else, then yeah. actually just dipping into these worlds and feeling good and just having a little bit of a you know a holiday um is a fucking cool thing and a a great privilege actually uh, because Mm. uh, lots of people can't have games consoles or pcs etc um yeah so yeah i I think it's it's valuable to recognize that as a a escape form of escapism in this time i can't I can't believe I was talking about a shark an hour ago. <laughs> <sighs> we all need to go off and bite into a big turtle. <laughs> Get our energy back. Delicious turtle. Majestic. Crunchy.
showed you some questions. God, yes. Some ideally smaller questions. Um, our first question comes from Abdul Rahman, who writes, Hello. In episode 281, which is a long time ago, it feels like, uh, Chris mentioned at the start uh, the replacement for PUBG Mobile in China, which is called Game for Peace, which is essentially a, a friendlier version of the game. Uh, we on the podcast then went on to talk about adding uh, the option to Mortal Kombat so that the winner could say some nice things or help their opponent instead of horrifically dismembering them. Now, a year later, friendships have been added to Mortal Kombat 11, which can replace fatalities with nice cutscenes of the winning character doing something playful, like playing jazz or making a painting. Said cutscenes don't finish, don't feature the losing character in any way, which is a shame. But this is a nice addition. So now that we all know the secret influence that you guys have on the games industry by simply imagining things <laughs> on a podcast, what features would you like developers to add to their games perhaps years later? Uh, thanks for the pods, Abdul Rahman. This is one of two questions we've got today about our ability to predict the future. So uh, what would you have inserted into games based on your random imaginings now? <laughs> I don't know what to do with my newfound power. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's almost too much, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost too much. Here's a prediction. I've got a prediction for you. I think that id Software will recognise that people play Doom for the music and formally integrate a rhythm action mode into that game. Oh, basically Ooh. just accept that it's dancing, and Tasty. we'll all move forward. Hand in hand with Mick Gordon, I think into the sweaty future. I think that um, performance capture will continue to become more and more advanced, but the scripts and the uh, you know the writing will not become more advanced. <laughs> that's, not, and... that's not a great wish for the future, though. You could use <laughs> no, your I mean, you could use your power for good, Tom. Oh shit! Oh, oh, this is supposed to be optimistic, isn't it? I, I think, I think, I think the idea is to eventually be right. So Tom's not on a bad no. track here. <laughs> oh shit! Um, if I if if I want to give a positive version of this, um, is that um, we would have like a version of Frozen in uh, <laughs> PC, PC gaming. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Where the the characters are just like so clearly expressed in their dialogue that they are adorable and often stupid, but still very entertaining. <laughs> um, and that's enough for a film, apparently, but apparently it's not enough for a game. <laughs> I, where right, I, so I, I'd like that to be enough for a game. Uh, that is a fucking. Dumbass answer <laughs> I've given to this question. I just, no, I love that. I like to make this more optimistic. I want a game with the, <laughs> the credible performances of Frozen. And I, I don't think that's I don't think that's a bad thing to wish for. I think Josh Gad is very entertaining as a human. <laughs> but but like I, I this I don't know. I think this might be your finest moment because I think, <laughs> Look, that, guys, I think, I think I, you, you were told to raise the bar and you just <laughs> put, picked it up and you put it at six. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's totally right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I was doing there really. And um, I, I was trying to be really enthusiastic, but I think I made the entire medium worse. Um, so and this is why you need to go work for the people who do remastered versions of Kingdoms of Amalur. Look, I'm gonna fucking work at that studio any minute if they call me. Aren't there? <laughs> Good. And uh, yeah, no, I mean. 
What the fuck did I say? <laughs> I, I can't know. even remember. I don't know. There's no way I can follow it, though. <laughs> Nothing I'm going to say is going to be better the, than that. The next question will take us even further into the unknown. Um, it's from Discord uh, member Nix, and she writes, Dear Creighton Cobra Mark III, uh, which is a good one. Um, bit of an elite joke there. Uh, I've been catching up on old episodes and found something very spooky. Last June, in episode 286, during a discussion of Soren Johnson's take on some MOBA mechanics, Alex identifies him as an old-world creator. Uh, Soren confirmed in his recent pod appearance that they only changed the game's name to Old World in February or March this year. Uh, and then uh, she's provided links to the evidence. Proper question time. Um, sorry, hang on. So uncanny, right? Good Lord. What What else might this modern oracle have predicted? So this is the first question is, what, what might Alex have been right about? <laughs> what, Wiltshire? <laughs> yeah. Well, we never know now. He's died of crows. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah he's been true. killed by crows. Yeah, well, he didn't predict didn't that, did that he? Coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, he did. He, he was oh, shouting yeah. about the... <laughs> wasn't a, It wasn't a very advanced warning, though, he gave. Or his message today, dead of crows, was the prediction, in which case we have acted um... far too late. Um, so Nix's actual question is, with Dota's International Battle Pass being released, uh, do you have any options about rewards, in this case particularly fancy digital hats, uh, being accessibility-gated? And um, the the best way to understand this, without diving into the specifics of the the battle pass, um, is that they require you to to want to play every single part of the game and to explore every single aspect of the game mm. and, and to be happy playing every part of the game. And that's not necessarily how everyone feels about it or how everyone uses the game. I think this is a really interesting point, personally, because I think you know battle pass mechanics, which Dota pioneered, are all about paying in to a an extra reward stream that uh, attaches to the things you're already doing in the game but it also makes the assumption that you're playing the game in a particular way and that's kind of interesting like the you know the um the obvious answer is don't you know then they obviously become less appealing to those people and there's a financial incentive for the developer to make them appealing and therefore make them appeal to people every possible use case uh, but that's not how, what people do and and i think that's honestly a missed opportunity like there's you know it should be, particularly the, the International Battle Pass, which is conceived as a celebration and as a fundraising tool for the international to some extent, it should feel like a celebration. And therefore, there's basically no reason to gate its rewards in any way, really. So, uh, um, sorry to interrupt. You're gone, yeah. But um, I, I wonder what your particular, and you and Pip's um, relationship is with Dota at the moment in terms of, uh, as like a, a thing you play or watch um i i at the last couple of years because time is going very quickly now i have mostly come back from a couple of months over the international so this is the time where i will return to it and the new battle pass is very appealing so i'll usually dip back in learn enough about the game to be able to follow the international which is this year's international is delayed indefinitely due to covid19 so sure. it's a little bit of a changed period yeah and it's probably the reason i've let back in straight away um uh and then people people normally kind of watch the international basically, and that's how I get engagement with Dota. And uh, now she doesn't play, um, yeah. but I also play much less than I used to. Yeah, um, but yeah. I said, Any I other thoughts? On, sorry, gone to. Uh, sorry. Um, so from a like, I I like watching the international. Um, I tend to do it every year, but I don't think I will this time. Mm. So it feels like something has changed. Yeah. Um, and it feels as though the integrity of the game is been diminished but i'm not sure quite how i don't know if like what you feel about that 
Uh, it's continued to change and evolve. I don't think I'd notice like a change in its integrity necessarily. Mm. Um, I think, you know, yeah, I genuinely don't know. Like, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I haven't, I haven't dipped back into the extent that I'm really sure of where the meta's at or anything like that. And yeah. I haven't watched Proto for a little while, so I don't know how healthy it is. Um, but I think I've seen it change so much that that doesn't really worry me. In fact, it's kind of exciting to go back and find out where it's at. Sure. You know? Um, yeah, and obviously, yeah. if it's super boring at the moment, then might not watch the international. But the good news is there's no international to watch. So Yeah, right. <laughs> Our next question comes from John, who writes, Hi there. Am I suffering from lockdown madness? Or is there sometimes a different version of your opening theme tune, which you substitute in occasionally? <laughs> Keep podding, John. John. J- John, though. John. <laughs> John, no. <laughs> <laughs> I almost want to leave this one a mystery. And the truth is that we have one like cut of this particular track, Clambake by the Mandibles, um, that you made as the intro cut at B3 for like episode two and that we have been using ever since. So yep. not only do we not use, use the same music, we've been using the same MP3 for seven years. Although... Yep. Mm. Oh. Although um, the new recording setup in these COVID-19 times has occasionally meant that I've had to reduce it to a mono track rather than a stereo track, huh. uh, which because uh, uh, we're actually using a different piece of software again today because Zencaster had a uh, conniption, uh, but Zencaster only supports mono recording. And so um, <laughs> I, 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 so maybe your, your, your sensitive ears have detected a very subtle difference. Yeah, all the all. <laughs> all you're mad. No, it's 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 the same. It's the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next question is the next two like questions are related, and so we'll yeah we may have to maybe get through both of them. They're also great. Um, Will writes, "Hello, Box and Prybar. At the start of episode three hundred and twenty-five, you lamented the nineties kid-esque writing of these." quote-unquote, wholesome games. I can see why it wouldn't appeal to you, oh ancient ones, but it does appeal to me. I was born after 2000, so I never experienced that life. I never experienced that life, but I sure wish that I had. This fabricated nostalgia has a certain influence on my preference in music and games. Anyway, in your childhoods, did you ever wish to be born a decade or two earlier, or is this born-in-the-wrong-decade phenomenon new to my generation? Thanks, oh, Will. Such a good this question. This might be my favorite question we've ever received because nothing has ever question. caused me more pain than this. <laughs> <laughs> I think I... he's probably right. Actually, I think I probably yes. did yearn, but I didn't yearn for real time periods. I yearned for um, com- to live in fictionalized, idealized worlds. Like I, I very, very strongly wanted to inhabit the world of Wind in the Willows when I was a child. <laughs> uh, and I still no, I'm not laughing at that. It's just incredible. Like. <laughs> very specific thing well, you want to be a, a horse running free <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think you've previously commented that my, my personality is pretty much exact hybrid of moly and badgers um, <laughs> <laughs> so it does figure but there is something about the uh, I think I don't know when is Wind of the World set it's like a 1930s 1920s mm. sort of world yeah but there's uh, there's something kind of unthreatening and pastoral about it and I, and I uh, probably also like Lion, the witch in the wardrobe those that is and the uh the children of green know all these books that were set in an undangerous time even though there's peril in the stories the the kind of the the time period itself feels quite 
know. I, I had exactly the same thing with um, uh, a series of books that my dad um, gave to me that actually, I don't know what they're called at all, but there's a badger <laughs> and there's another dude and they just sail on canal boats and get into trouble. Um, and it was like such a reassuring and like sort of rural comforting adventure uh and that stayed with me forever that idea uh to the extent that like i i went out into the rural places in england and did uh hikings and things and it was uncomfortable and cold (laughs) (laughs) and um actually yeah nature doesn't give a fuck about you so um yeah it's it's a fascinating sort of like contrast between this pastoral um optimism and the reality of actually being in nature uh which i enjoyed see so i i was surprised that you said you thought this was new to uh will's generation because i definitely felt like i was born in the wrong decade when i was a teenager Mm. like profoundly like when i was 15 16 i basically exclusively i don't know i've said this either to you guys as friends or or like on this podcast um i exclusively wore like flares and like pretty high-heeled snakeskin boots and paisley shirts and i had my hair down to the middle of my chest and i just listened to 70s and 60s prog oh, fuck basically. Yeah, i did that as well i did that as well wow. i remember I, I used to wear those flared jeans but um it wasn't the same as you chris because like this was a skater thing um, right. i got into i got mega into the skater thing at that particular era mm. uh, and i had um <laughs> i had a a, a, a t-shirt from uh, a particular bazaar in Birmingham that does that sort of thing uh, that normally sells bongs um, <laughs> I had the massive massive flares <laughs> jean flares yeah. and a skateboard and I could not fucking skateboard to save my <laughs> life <laughs> so I, yeah sorry to interrupt but like no no I think uh, uh, yeah that, that feels closer to the generation that we were though to some extent mm. but I think there's still definitely like a desperate nostalgia for things like it wasn't sure. until like older that I realized all of the, <laughs> the weirdness of being like a fifteen-year-old kid in two thousand and two, who like sort of like didn't only related to things that Led Zeppelin had said, or like <laughs> listening to like King Crimson and Wishbone Ash and like raiding my dad's record collection. And definitely that that phase lasted a fair old while, like until college basically as in six form mm. college and so i do very profoundly relate to this sense of attaching as a teenager to a previous culture and only understanding the very most surface elements of it but clinging sure. to them desperately because in my case um you just really don't like new metal <laughs> yeah well, like, well quite, quite reasonable is, really I think, yeah in everyone else is into yeah everyone else is into papa roach and and you're not and so yeah in my yeah. case it was just attaching onto an American idea of skateboarding. Yeah, I mean, in that case, it's it's the cultural transplant thing. It's like desperately wanting to... I also remember desperately wishing I went to an American high school because I loved Buffy and I just assumed that was what going to school was like in America. <laughs> I went right, to right, a... Right. Like, I went to a, um, you know, like, kind of a, a boys... All boys school in the south of England and I hated every minute of it. And on television, on Channel 4, when you got home from school, was the same people your age, but who were secretly played by beautiful 20-year-olds. <laughs> in some cases, 30-year-olds, I think, in Nicholas <laughs> Brendan's case. 
um, whose uh, high school life involved like hanging out in the library, fighting monsters, and seeing a new pretty cool '90s band every every night at the Bronze. And so I desperately wanted that as well. Yeah, it feels um, like which as is though, side um, nostalgia, I guess. Yeah, it feels as though um, Harry Potter is kind of barged in to this yeah. realm and sort of made people think that boarding schools are good. Right. Um, yeah, they suck. They fucking suck and they actually really fuck people up and it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and also like it, it, just like the image it gives of Oxbridge, like mm. it's just really... Yeah. Uh, it's just <laughs> It's not like that. It's I'll just tell you wrong. that right now. Yeah. I'll tell you it's not it's not like that. Yeah. Um, it's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, so um I think like glorifying that uh private school uh, sorry. For some reason they're called public school in this country. I don't yeah, understand. But it's 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 easier to call it private school. Uh, yeah. Um but, but yeah, but like that's um that being glorified it feels like um cultural damage, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Maybe. I think also like I think it is in I think if it if it, sometimes I think that those interpretations are so far removed from the real thing that they're almost harmless as fantasy. Maybe that's maybe that's not quite the case. Maybe they do do damage. I was thinking about this because Pip and I have watched like every single post Vampire Diaries vampire thing on Netflix, and there's a fucking lot of them. And that whole genre is about a certain kind of um, wish fulfillment for teens. Basically, it's very informed by YA fiction, and it's quite good fun because it's it's very, it's it's you know schlocky but very rooted in a particular set of of tropes have to be ticked um particularly in in ya fiction that has a female gaze which is all about you have to be the outsider at your boarding school but your boarding school has to either also be full of angels or vampires or both or werewolves and these are the three different boyfriends that there are and this is the (laughs) order in which you meet them and and there's there's infinite potential for for uh, <laughs> articulations of that stuff within in, within that genre, and I really enjoyed that stuff partly because it expresses something really fun about what another generation is growing up with as their kind of little like God, I wish my life was like this touchstones. Yeah. Like yeah. I would definitely say that that yearning is universal, right? That like sure, it's sure. just interesting in this case to hear it directed at something that we lived through and that wasn't like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was actually quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The next question is related to it. I might as well plow onto it because it has yeah, some good really good it. answers to this. Robert writes, Hi all, in episode 235, Marsh made an offhand comment about 80s nostalgia, wondering why people who never lived through that time seemed attracted to media portraying it. I noticed myself strangely longing for this time period when watching The Breakfast Club for the first time a few days ago. I was born in 96 and grew up in Germany, so I don't actually have a personal connection to this culture. I believe the main aspect that resonates with me are the very pure relationships and deep bonds between the children and teens that the children and teens in these stories have these in turn arise from going through extreme experiences together like a whole weekend detention standing up against bullies in a gravel pit or escaping from monsters in a cave the environment facilitates these for example mobile phones and the internet not being available cities containing or bordering large natural environments and especially adults being indifferent or ignorant of what their children are doing which results in children being far more independent personally that's why it's not specifically about the 1980s, but those general circumstances. I had the same uh, feelings when reading Stephen King's It, where the majority plays out in the 1950s, or playing Life in Strange, which is a more modern setting, but at least Max's mindset seems more familiar to a character of an earlier period. 
Contrast this with today's children and teens who are always connected to everyone and particularly to their parents and honestly spend much more time, much more of their time inside. This might be reductive, but to me, it only seems logical that this generation gravitates towards media, which shows characters having adventures and relationships, which are so much rarer today. Anyway, has a game or other piece of media ever triggered a longing for a time period that you never yourself lived through? Thanks for reading, Robert. Like, I feel like we've actually answered the, the yeah. question that's attached to that, but I think it's an amazing observation. That's, yeah. that's the, pa- yeah. the best pairing of question and then answer <laughs> that we've yeah. had, I think, in this yeah. podcast. That's fucking awesome. Like, um, uh, yeah. So, like, do you guys, what era, if you were to be, be transported, what decade would you tra- transport to? It's hard to say, because, I mean, uh, although the, you know, the wind in the willows or whatever is, uh, is, is appealing. I know it's a fiction, so I wouldn't yeah. ever ever go back to those eras. Those that's those are fictions without peril, without class, without poverty, mm. really. Um, and in the wind of the willows, the poor people are kind of bad. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. they're all the yeah. the weasels and the stoats that live in the wood and speak with Cockney accents and have uh, bludgeons uh, and assault the the manor. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is like as you get older, you realize that. It's, I think those fantasies become harder to maintain if you have a critical mind at all for, yeah. for the history and for the sure. past. And like, cause I, you know, I, I have a lot of fun and really enjoy the, the trappings of um, Agatha Christie, for example, that, that particular vision of, of the, the Poirot version of England. And we've, we've, we've mm-hmm. had a lot of fun with this on little gray cells in the past. It elides a vast amount, a vast amount. And, it, you know, it has its own methods of interrogating that world through, like, Poirot's eyes, for example, and making those characters faintly ridiculous. But it also, it's also such a comfortable place and it, it shouldn't be, necessarily. Um, and so I would probably happily spend time living in that version of that period in, in history, just because I find it kind of sweet and charming in that particular depiction of it. But I wouldn't actually go back there under any circumstances and and mm. the and the and the flip side to this is that it's obviously possible to play in those spaces right like you know I, I have been to you know balls and events and things in my life you know 20s themed you know, you know um, jazz era events and parties and things and that itself is always a slightly uncomfortable experience because it's it's fun it's fun to have fun with the past but you also allied so much in doing it and that's a tricky thing to navigate because it is fun, but it's also mm. uh, an active, yeah, um, par- you know, I guess deliberate critical uh, illusion of things that are uncomfortable in order to have a good time. And is that good or bad? I don't know. I'm still talking. Our last question is very different. It comes from Takuna, who writes, Hello, Crete and Malta, whatever. Would you swap out your first-person perspective forever in favor of a third-person perspective, like in video games where you control its position, but you can only zoom in as far as the near side of your head? You can zoom out as far as you usually can in games, though. I definitely would. (laughs) (laughs) Takuna. (laughs) I definitely wouldn't. I mean, this would have been useful uh, when I uh, shaved my head over the weekend. Um, Oh, my God, right? In other... Yeah, it's... um, uh, it was a mistake. Uh, I will uh, wear a hat, basically, for two months, I think. In other regards, no, I don't want to see myself. Why would I want to see myself? I think, like, I, I like painting Warhammer, and so if I am stuck in third person, <laughs> I would have to hold the Warhammer behind my head <laughs> in order to paint it, because 
So I I would I'm going to volunteer right now to continue using my eyes to see. <laughs> yeah, likewise, likewise. Uh, and earlier today, I posted a picture of um, uh, four of my most proudly painted Warhammer figurines attacking a series of uh, bunny rabbits wrapped in foil made of chocolate and. I'd roll some dice to figure out who would win between these two <laughs> vicious combatants. And it turned out that the uh, the foil bunnies fucked them up <laughs> super bad. Uh, and that was delightful. It was really good. And then I ate them. We've <laughs> been in lockdown for a long time. Yeah, I, I just like peeled, peeled off that foil and ate them. <laughs> That is all the <laughs> That is all the questions we've got time for. Uh if you would like to send us uh questions for future episode of the Crate and Crowbar, please uh email us questions at crateandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at uh crate and crowbar and find our Discord community on Discord. Via a link that's available on our website at crateandcrowbar.com. Uh, thank you again to all of our Patreon supporters and everyone who supports the podcast. You can find out more details about that on patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. Uh, once again, hope everyone's uh, staying safe and taking care of themselves and others and, and as well as you possibly can be. Uh, I've been Chris Thurston. I've been Marsh Davis. And I've been Tom Senior. Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. Uh, yeah, this is me saying 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Wow. That's counting to 20 with the Crate and Crowbar.